Right then, welcome or welcome back to the Midnight Podcast, where we have super in-depth, authentic, super transparent, open conversations with an array of different entrepreneurs from many different industries. I really want to make this a podcast known for going super in-depth on loads of topics that other podcasts are scared to speak about. I feel like most stuff out there these days is just super surface level, super vanilla, and doesn't really answer the questions that viewers and listeners want to hear. So that's what we're trying to do. Keep it real and keep it raw. I'm sure you'll get a huge amount of value listening or watching the pod wherever you are. And if you do, don't forget to subscribe, recommend it to a friend, leave a like and a comment and just let us know what you think. And yeah, really hope you enjoy this episode. Right then, back with episode 27 of the Midnight Pod, arguably my most anticipated guest and we've been trying to fucking sort <laughs> this a big for claim. a few months <laughs> but the man's too busy living life post exit um we have jimmy hill who i guess most famously has built and recently exited from hairburst which is well basically a fucking hair care brand gummies shampoos all that good shit um from up north as well so i'm definitely fucking biased towards you done a few other things as well haven't you like mr blank teeth and shit which maybe we can get into but i guess first question as always and there's probably like actually there's like this is an interesting episode because certainly I think for a lot of people in e-com watching like younger guys including myself not to lick your ass, but you've probably done what a lot of people want to do which is start a brand from scratch scale it make it a proper business which we can talk about and then made a shitload of money selling it to a big fucking strategic buyer basically mm-hmm. and then beyond that so yeah, I think an interesting episode. There's like probably three key areas that we're going to, but um, yeah, I guess fairly chronologically. And like, first question is just how did you get started, really? Like, way, way back. Way, way we back. Can dive in. Um, so, probably quite a stereotypical startup journey, really. Um, just depends how far I want to go back. But I mean, we when we I started. Think, like, the when brand, you literally started in the e-com. brand. Yeah, like right at the start. Ecom. Because e- Ecom, I was an eBay seller for a bit. So I was selling used phones on eBay for like a long period of time, which is a long story. But in terms of like when Hairburst started, we, I just did it with two friends. We had uh, 4K in savings, hmm. um, we just pulled together and um, we bought our first load of products from a manufacturer for like 3K and then scaled up from there, which is a, obviously a long journey. But just to give people context, Hairburst now is, um, it's an e-com brand, but it's also a retail brand as well. So we've got, I mean, we're stocked in 20,000 stores worldwide. So we've got, um, obviously in the UK was our first market. So we've got like Boots, Superdrug, um, Holland and Barrett. And then in Europe, we've got like Sephora. America, we've got CVS. In Asia, we've got AS Watson. So it's 20,000 stores globally, which is like half the business. And the other half is the e-com, which is where it all started, which is probably what we're going to talk about today. But yeah, started with 4K, one skew and um yeah grew over nine years yeah yeah that is a long time going back to the phone stuff because i know you put i saw this on your instagram so i I actually followed you on instagram like three years ago which is kind of niche i suppose because you don't have like a personal brand or at least maybe then less so of one because i I saw you bought (laughs) you bought a car from redline and i bought a car from redline and it's just like just follow fucking everyone in the e-com space but yeah i saw you worked at car phone warehouse or some shit thanks for you yeah, phones for Which you. has gone bust now. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the story there? Like you mentioned you were selling shit on eBay. I think it was related. 
So I, I was that's pre hairburst, but yeah, that's pre hairburst. But I um, so I had I wanted to do ecom for probably like after uni. It was like it kind of became a thing. So I used to play poker online. So I used to play um, mainly heads up because I had a few friends that used to play poker and make like quite good money from that. So I used to play um, mostly heads up on various different poker sites. And my whole ambition was just to uh, make a living doing something on my own. Didn't at the time when I started to play poker, the idea was I'd just play poker. I'd be able to go to Thailand, work from my laptop, all that kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, and then after doing that for like four or five years, it became it's very hard to scale that because it's unless you invest like which is like staking other players, you can't really do it passively. So I was never going to be that. You, you have to always be the horse basically. So yeah. Realized I wanted to do ecom, read loads of ecom books. And that was the path I wanted to go to. But in between poker and starting a brand, I had, I had no money. So it was back to work. So I got a job at Phones for You. Did you go to uni? Anna? Yeah, but I did sport at uni because I was always in sport. Where are? Leeds Met. Leeds oh, Met, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. proper university. Um, but I was from Scunthorpe originally, which is about an hour away. Yeah. And uh, went to Leeds Met three years. But again, like when I was at uni, I just played poker all the time. I didn't actually do my degree mm. um did you finish the degree though yeah i didn't even get a, what's that under a two two a third is it don't know Irrelevant. It's like, basically means it doesn't count yeah because i didn't want to be a p teacher that was like my initial plan um but if you get a third you can't be a p teacher <laughs> yeah, but by the time i was i think it was probably maybe two months into uni is when i found poker mm. and then that kind of absorbed my life for like four or five years but interestingly when we get we can get into it later but Poker's a game. People think poker's gambling, but it's actually a game of skill. It's almost like a, it's like chess with luck involved. So you have to be quite analytically minded. And you, I think I learned a lot from that when it came into e-com in terms of like looking at analytics, looking at data, looking at like your own performance, analyzing your performance, looking at other players' performance, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, that, I think that definitely helped me, even though it wasn't my end result, it did definitely help. Um, what was your question? Leeds, yeah, went to uni. Yeah, so starting hair burst, are you were you in uni or did you finish uni? Uh, I finished. So I finished, did poker for a bit, went traveling, did the Thailand thing, mm. which was like the best time of my life still. Yeah. Because I had didn't even have a phone then. It was just like, I had 7K in savings, booked my flights, went there for like, like Thailand and Australia for like six to eight months. And two of the guys that I went with, they were uh, co-founders in Hairburst when we first started. Yeah. So that was... Um, that was kind of where I guess the Hairburst story started because that's when I was really getting into e-com and learning about it. Um, but in between then was, I got a job at Phones for You. I was selling, I think it was 16 grand a year with a bit of commission. So that was after uni, working yeah. Phones for You. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, fuck. And then you decided, just point blank, let's just start a fucking e-com brand. Well, or I was- you thought about it for a while. Was didn't didn't think about it. At that cooking? point, I wasn't, I was, I was conscious of it, but I also probably didn't have the, I knew that, I wanted to sell online, but I didn't have anything to sell. And I wanted to have my own brand, but I didn't know what it was going to be at that point in time. Mm. So I was literally at Phones For You and um, I just started buying phones off customers and like bagging them up in my car and then taking them and selling them on eBay. So that was like, and I can remember writing, I'd, I'd have uh, like a blue diary and I used to write in the diary, like being quite honest with myself. And I used to write things like, like you don't know what you're going to end up selling, but you know you want to do e-com. So just like find things to sell. And it was like, just like a, a development thing. And it was just like, got to the point where I was getting quite desperate. I was like, I'll just sell anything. Mm -hmm. So I started by just like 
yeah, literally buying used phones and going through that process of yeah. having a product and taking it to the post office. So that was like got me got my brain going in terms of how how that would work. Um, roll on. Uh, I was only there for like eight months, and then I had a job at a search marketing agency um, in Leeds as well. So I was just in the sales team, but I was speaking to loads of different brand owners. It was quite interesting. So I'd speak to a a brand owner that had. Um, I mean, it could sell anything. Like one did sheds, one did like bedding. Another one was selling like sports supplements. Another like, and you, you speak to the founder and understand. Like it was the, SEO, the the agency mostly focused on like SEO and like more traditional forms mm. of marketing. And I was seeing how many how much these companies were spending on this like per month. And it was like, okay, that's like a big investment. Like, how do I get my own off the ground? And then social media came around which is a, a big blessing for me. And that's where we launched our brand. And what was the logic to like, because obviously you don't strike me as a customer of Hairburst. Because mm. for me, like I always think, I don't know, like when I started brands, I was like building shit for me. And yeah. then, yes, it was other customers, but was it like analytical? Or was it just like, fuck it, let's do this and see what happens. And it worked or? Uh, so I, because I had an interest in sport, I always used to be, like I was on my protein, I tried to think how much I spent when I was younger on my protein. Yeah. Um, and that was the brand I always looked up to. Now, by the time I, it was like, this is like 2013, the brand was already huge. Bulk Powders is a great brand. There's all these other yeah. cool brands. And I mean, guys were on Instagram, but in terms of like influencers or like influential pages, um, it was mostly targeted towards females. So it was like, I understood nutrition. I understood social media at this point. And it was trying to find the right brand and product to fit that as opposed to mm. thinking about it either way. So I was like, just imagine just like understood nutrition, understood that it was mostly uh, girls at the time on Instagram. Like yeah. what do I, what do I find? So the long way around it to me felt quite logical to do a hair supplement, which was the first product. Yeah. All right. So how old were you then when you decided, fuck it, let's do hair, but you would have been what, I guess nine years younger than you are now, which is... 24? Yeah. I think I was 23. And did, I assume there was like, was there like a crossover between like jobs and shit or did you literally all, well, the two of you put some money in and then just say, let's go all in? Um, like how did that? So work? I was working at the agency. We'd started the brand aside from that. Mm. Um, so we were literally, so I was doing my job, getting back from work, packing the orders. Uh, my business partner was working like heavily on getting different influences like posts about the brand. And then like morning, afternoon, night, just like packing the different orders when we had a chance. And then when we sort of hit like a point where we could start to see some potential profitability, uh, that's when I decided to quit work and go full time and pile in. And I can remember it was like, it was dead simple, right? We had like one skew, we were getting traffic in. The traffic was cheap because it was coming from Instagram pages that no one knew was even like an advertising platform at the mm. time. There's probably like Gymshark and a few other like yeah. cool brands that were doing it, but not in our sector. Um, and uh, yeah, we were just dead early with that. But anyway, we we're driving traffic to the site for cheap and conversion rates. We we're just watching that like a hawk because I knew if I could get a conversion rate of like two plus, that I'd make enough money to cover my day job wage that I was getting now. Mm. So, I mean, we're going to get into this, but my approach then was like just cover my wage and get paid whereas like a lot of brands now it's like which I agree with is raise money 
uh, find investment and then push on from there. Mm. Whereas I was like, just make enough money to then pay myself to then focus full time, which is actually counterintuitive because really it should go back in. But when you've got, yeah, when you've still got a job, you have to take some salary, right? What was the first product? First gear? Capsule. Uh, Hairburst, the Hairburst original formula, which still is one of our best sellers today. So mm. it, was, it was like 16 ingredients, uh, 26 ingredients for, for all focused on hair. Yeah. And how were you sourcing that at the time? Because obviously like, I've recently gone into like consumable shit and it's a fucking minefield. So like, as a first project in e-com, it seems pretty, pretty complex. Mm. We didn't, I mean, we, we just worked directly as a manufacturer in the UK, but we probably spoke to... Yo, fellas, quick one. First bit of promo for the pod. You may or may not have heard, I released a fucking e-com course a few months ago. Basically spent like six months making it because I was in between businesses, as you probably know, if you follow my shit. I must say, 12 hours long, it's fucking quality content. I was gonna drop it at like 1,500 quid with some bullshit guru-y webinar and all that rubbish, but as you know, it's not my main thing. I'm working on a new brand right now, very, very fucking much in the trenches, which is why I think it's actually a better course than everything else out there, because it's built on real experience of my brands in the past and my current one. I think it's super, super valuable. If you're interested in e-com, you're already in e-com and you want it to get into e-com, zero to one, starting a brand from scratch, then definitely worth investing in. Link is in the bio of this video or podcast, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever the fuck you're listening or watching and enjoy the rest of the pod. 20 maybe different mm. like they want to take they want people like my protein to to work with them and go okay we want to try this new skew let's have like fifty thousand products or th- like big chunks whereas i was i was going for meetings talking about building out this hair brand that's going to be big but i've only got three grand <laughs> to buy products yeah so they yeah it, it took me a while to get a manufacturer but we did eventually get one and i'm still in touch with the guy who um, was a sales guy at the time on their end. Yeah. Yeah, it was a factory in the UK. Nice, nice. And was this all on Shopify even back then? Yep. Shopify store. Yeah. I mean, it looks horrendous back then, looking back. But it was all through Shopify, yeah. Yeah. And then where did sales come from? Is it literally organic? Because obviously now it wouldn't be. Influencers and influencer pages. So we were Entirely. like... Entirely? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we set... We had Google Live fairly soon... Um, we were doing some Facebook ads but actually unsuccessfully at the start and then at the very very start it was wasn't even it wasn't even like Instagram influencers it was pages I can't remember one was called Nails for You because I used to work at Phones for You and I thought it was quite funny yeah. <laughs> but it was just a page that had like 100,000 followers posted loads of like new nail designs or whatever mm. but they would take payment so you'd be like 50 quid 100 quid whatever to yeah. post the brand and that would drive traffic to the site. Yeah. And there was hundreds of them. Up, like there was loads in America, loads in the UK, loads internationally. Like, well, tens of thousands of these pages that existed. They're probably still around today, but I don't know if they're a viable marketing channel. Um, mm. Yeah, shit's definitely changed. Do you know anybody who had any pages? Or did you ever build a page? No, I didn't, to be fair. I, I don't like... Um it social chain that started with all that apparently like all that early sort of shit yeah this is a bit before my time actually like 2013 14 i would have been still in bloody sixth form and one of our co-founders he um he had a page called beards and tats yeah that i just found it, it was a bit weird i found it a bit weird at the time like he was just he had this instagram page and a twitter page and he just posted um like cool looking guys with like beards and like toes and it was like, that was the page. Yeah. But people followed it for like tattoo ideas or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And that caught my attention because it was like, I think he got to like 50, 60,000 followers on these page. And I was like, well, this is a page for that, but is there a page for this or a page yeah. for this? But back in the day when people got Facebook famous rather than like Instagram famous and shit. Yeah, Facebook pages. Massive, organic reach. Massive, yeah. Yeah. So the first year of the business then, like what sort of numbers are we talking? And was it literally one skew for the first year or did that quickly expand? Uh, it quickly expanded, but we went too quick with that. Um, so by... We didn't do a million in our first year. I think we, we went past a million in our second year. Um, but we were super profitable because we were paying we were paying these pages and it didn't cost much to get traffic. Mm. So when we actually figured it out and it was like, we started to really get the pages going and we were, we were making good money at that point. So within like the first year, I'd quit my job. I was working on it full time. Um, I cut one of my co- two or two co-founders, they were then on it full time as well. Yeah. So... Uh, we didn't have an office. We were just working out. We had all well, lived together. So we had the same house. We were packing the garage. But I think probably somewhere like mid through the second year, it was like, okay, this is working. We're making, we're now making some good money, but it's, it's a huge opportunity to build a proper brand because I knew how much traffic that traditional companies in any sector, like, like I said, like bedding and like garden materials and all this, like I see the traffic. So it was like, I knew our traffic mm. was strong. And I knew we were paying much less than the competition. Yeah. So it was a case of attacking it quite hard from there. Yeah. And then at what point did you start running like Facebook ads and shit? Was that quite a way after that? Because that still would have been pretty early for those platforms. So our, even now, like our Facebook ads strategy isn't as good as other brands. Um, I mean, I know that you've got a big background in that and you were really successful with it. But I think because we were so successful with um like the influencer side and the retail side, mm. it kind of took like a, a second holding. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we started Facebook ads pretty pretty much straight away, but we didn't have what I have now and what like we speak about is like having a data driven approach to the marketing. Like we did, when we first started, we didn't understand any of that, so we kind yeah. of we kind of grew into that over time. Yeah, yeah. And at this point, is it literally just you and you, did you have staff or was it literally the founders? So yeah, I'd probably say halfway through the second year, it was we started to invest in staff. Mm. Um, but again, like we were, I always say like, if I did it again, I would probably, I'd go much harder, but because it was the first proper money that we were making, we were taking a lot out. And yeah. we were, so again, like, I mean, we did invest in staff, but we were we were really profitable compared to other brands. And I always kept everything super lean. Like when we got our first office, it was 350 pounds for a month. Yeah, fucking up north. Yeah, so it was like That's nothing, you know? Yeah, so it's interesting that this was literally, this was your first e-com thing you'd ever done, right? Because, I mean, obviously you yeah. kind of dabbled around in like selling phones and shit. I looked at, I actually looked at doing some Amazon stuff as well. I was trying to find something, um, but it was, it was, I was just like playing around. I didn't really, this is the first one I took like really seriously, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like now, I mean, like starting a brand now, if you don't have any experience, I, I feel like it'd be fucking difficult. I think, and I know you've mentioned that before on like Instagram or something. Um, unless, you, yeah, like you need money, more money than you did in the past for sure. I mean, I, I even know that. Um, and more experience, I think. Hmm. I think with experience, you can you can raise money like I've done. But, you know, if you don't have experience or money, I think now, pretty fucking impossible. Hmm. Not impossible, but like, probably, I don't know, a lot harder than I, even for me it was a few years ago with like some of my earlier brands and shit. Because I originally started with dropshipping. Mm-hmm. Did that ever 
cross yeah. your mind. Yeah, yeah. Because you went straight into buying stock. Yeah. Which is a pretty ballsy move. Yeah. But we, we were before. playing around with like, I was on Alibaba, like trying to find some interesting stuff. Yeah. I looked at, uh, <laughs> this is random as hell. Uh, I was looking at doing like heated, um, or like cooling blankets for beds. Mm. Like I could literally remember like one night I was like, I don't know, in like English summer, you know, like when you're away in like on holiday, whatever you have air come, you don't have that at home. Don't know, she used to like look at random stuff, but I never really committed to anything. Um, apart from when we did hair burst. Yeah, yeah. So there, I was always looking, but it, it does take, and when you're talking about like starting, I think you do need to, you're always better off to commit and just go for something and, and learn along the way as opposed to like, because I had a good year where I'm just like looking around trying to find something to do, but hmm. it's quite hard to get started. Once you have the momentum, it starts to fill itself and it's, you like set a fire and it just goes, but yeah. Um, yeah, making that call. Cause you, like, just from like your history, like you did dot around a bit, didn't you? Like you've done so, so much stuff. Fucking ADHD spec. Yeah, it's, it's only Which now. Which is a skill set in itself, but. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like a high risk skill set. Cause yeah, like, I mean, yeah, I, I've got one particular mate who's definitely like the most successful Don I know for that age. And yeah, he's, he's only ever done like the one thing mm-hmm. and similar to kind of what you're saying. Whereas my problem, maybe it's like a blessing and a curse but like yeah I feel like I could start a brand in any category <laughs> yeah. but then that means it's like fucking which one do I choose you know what I mean yeah. and I was a bit, I was a lot more analytical with my new brand because I actually for the first time ever sat down and was like okay let's not just start something randomly I was literally like kind of what you said before I was like well I know this this and this now like this didn't work this didn't work you know what ticks this this and this box potentially you know, like what am I interested in enough to work on as well? And and what is like a market, you know, all, all this sort of thing. And then, yeah, came to the new shit I'm working on. But yeah, I, now I need to stick with one and fucking like iterate rather than change. Was there any, any ones that you did in the past that you thought you wish you stuck around a bit longer? Yeah, so I had a clothing brand, but actually before I got into dropshipping, back in like 2016 when I was at uni, we had an office and shit. And that was, I think we did like a few hundred grand a month, not a few hundred grand a month, sorry, no, like a few hundred grand over about six months. And I was like, we were 20 in uni, like that was fucking good. And we were like designing clothes and shit, holding it in a 3PO. And then we just, me and my mate who'd started it, we just fell out basically and it just disintegrated. Mm. Um, But yeah, I spoke about that on episode 23 with him, Ollie, who's now running an agency. But yeah just chops and change so much and then I was like well fuck I, I just want to travel and make money and then I got into drop shipping and yeah this whole episode that's gone out about this now by now but um because yeah like the, I don't know if I had a, sp- a specific goal when I got started like did you I mean obviously you said travel. just to travel literally just travel I know it's like become like a a thing now with online brands but yeah for me it was uh, read the four hour work week and that pretty much that changed my life I would say and mm. I'm going to say the four-hour work week and everyone's going to think, oh, yeah, maybe I'll read that book. But I mean, it's not the best book I've ever read, for sure. But in terms of like the time I was in, this is like, I mean, it's, it was fairly outdated then in terms of like actual strategies. But like, what he used to do is he would test uh, various different concepts using Google Ads. Mm. The way I we did it was through social and the way you do it is through social. So it has gone on. But in terms of like the core principles of building an e-com brand, I think there's a lot still in there that's useful for people. But basically I read that and it was like, um, what well, I think he said, he was doing 30K a month or something in sales. Mm. And I can remember at the time reading that thinking, wow, that's like amazing. Like I'd love to do something that did that. Um, 
And uh, but in terms of like just like basic margins, understanding the way that any ecom brand works, that was that was really useful for me at the time because that was like my first one of my first like real looks into it. So I read business books yeah. and stuff like I read Richard Branson and, and all those like classics, but that was like the first sort of ecom thing that I really read. Yeah, and I think it really stuck with me. Um, yeah. And, and he, then, and sorry, and he was to answer your point. It was yeah, yeah. what was the goal? It was that was the travel because mm. that's what he was doing. And like, how how quickly did that change? Like so, like I don't know. You said two years in, you reached like seven figures in sales. Did you start to think maybe there's like were you even thinking about the potential scale, or was it just like oh this is better than when we started? Let's keep trodding along. Mm. Like, um, was it, was it just getting on with things? Like the buzz of. And even now. Because I feel like a lot of people now just speak about starting a brand to sell yeah. rather than starting something. We did them. not do that. Do you know what I mean? We did not do that. Even mm. though we, that's what we've done. It, that yeah. wasn't the plan. That's what I mean. It's the irony. Like, I'm trying to think when, there was, when it actually changed. But I mean, the buzz of, like you'll know, but from like working a job to having like a life ambition just for like working for myself, earning enough money to travel to Thailand, which costs absolutely nothing. Like, you can stay in a hotel for a tenner and it's half decent. Yeah. <laughs> to have that as an ambition to then within like a year, like fulfilling my dream, like that buzz was like unbelievable. Mm. Like I can remember like, obviously when you're working a job, you have like four weeks holiday. So to then go to a point where I had like, obviously I was accountable to my business partners and I wanted to do the best I could possibly for them. But it was a case of, I've, yeah we kind of like achieved it so I kind of I think when people talk about the exit and they talk about like when they get exit and it's like you have this like gold medal syndrome and all this like kind of stuff um, for me that happened then like literally like seven years ago because my yeah. actual goal was just to be able to travel and, and be free basically and freedom and that's even now it's like freedom's my number one thing so um, the goal was that that was achieved within the first two years let's say and then it was a case of we're now we've achieved what we're going to achieve we can we can travel we can do all this cool stuff but it was I think we were like surrounded by the opportunity of building a, a real brand because you kind of go through because I came from almost like similar to your background where it's like it's not like I really want to build this particular brand it was I want to find something that's like my thing that I do and it's it gives you money and freedom right that's like yeah. the overall goal so then it kind of we realized how quickly we were growing it was like well wow if we can and i started to see if, like a competitor sold um like my protein sold to the hook group uh, yeah. another competitor sold for like a big money and i was like okay so you're looking at potentially five six seven years worth of hard work to be free for the rest of my life and i thought it's probably time to get my head down and like really knuckle down yeah and how far into the business do you think because we spoke about this before and I, I feel like it's the stage that a lot of people struggle with I mean I, I've certainly struggled with it and, and not really got there I feel like is is like turning it from like I don't know kind of a bedroom brand that's doing pretty well which a lot of guests I've had on here are kind of at and, and I've been at in the past to like I guess a real business and and I, it's I guess it's different now maybe because like you can have a real business and still be like fully remote and shit but mm-hmm was there a point where I guess you noticed the opportunity, like you said, head down, what actually changed? Um, 
or is it gradual? And, and what were those? I understand changes? the real business thing um, because, like looking back, it kind of there's like there's no difference from a consumer's point of view. From from like a founder's point of view, you see it quite clearly. Like, let's say you set up a, I don't know, like a a trainer brand. Say, mm. there's like from your point of view, you'd think, okay, I've got a trainer brand. I'm doing a few million sales, and but it's not a real brand because Nike's a giant. That's like a real trainer brand. Yeah. But from a consumer's point of view, like. A lot of consumers don't understand where the brand came from and everything starts from from a low point. Um, and I think you can build a real brand in any category. I think there's a book on it. I think I brief. I didn't actually read it fully, but I think it's called Category Killers. I don't know if you've seen that one. No. But it talks about like each individual category, like nearly down a category, which we've talked about before. Like we obviously nailed down the, the hair category and that's what we focused on, but there's basically every aspect of business and like all these brands like the like P&G or Unilever own, like, I don't know, like, I don't know, like detergent or whatever. It's just another brand, right? Mm. And it's also not even, it's not even a face. Like it doesn't have a founder story. So everything can be disrupted um, and become like a real brand. But it's just, I guess it's a case of like scale. And I think for us, we got quite quickly into retail as well. So that was, makes you realize like, okay, so there's this real brand that's mm. like there and then there's us next to it. And then they're selling more than us, but yeah. we're quite close behind, you know? So you can't, there's, there's not really a difference. I think you kind of, yeah. What is that answer your question? Yeah, it's quite, there, I, mean, I'm I know just what you're saying, because there is like a distinct difference, but at the same time, there isn't really. Yeah, because I mean, I guess the, the one thing I've always thought about is is how do you, how, how do you like, how do you become appealing for someone to actually buy it. And I know this is like, we can talk about that in, later on, but even like with the new thing I'm starting, I very much don't want to fall into the category of, oh, it's just another fucking copycat brand. Like, you know, does a few million in sales, like every other fucking brand that's started by anyone with like a half decent brain. Cause I feel like it's quite easy to get to like two, three, well, not easy, but very doable to get to sort of a few million in revenue now with e-com. If you know what you're doing, you got a bit of money behind yeah. you so this is interesting right I would categorically say that from your side you're saying that but from what I've seen I'd say that's the hardest bit so you can actually do the hardest bit potentially well like, yeah, you know, I've done like, it twice well but then just fucked it with the last one which yeah. took everything down that literally is the hardest bit like if you can take a concept get it to a few million in sales and then I think what you're saying is like then where's the next Stage, yeah, because well, yeah, so that's the that first that's bit of the thing that I was tr was getting to the point where I was trying to do very consciously, but it was terrible timing because yeah, in twenty twenty ended up having two brands, and then if I hadn't had the fucking neon one, you know, whatever, the, the other one could have been that one, but whatever. And then I, I was very consciously trying to, like, I was actually dealing with a advisory firm that was kind of like friend of a friend sort of thing and whatever but like they were trying to help me make it more corporate was like the terms they'd use because ultimately like I was just a fucking lad on a laptop in a kitchen doing like a million a month in sales at one point yeah and granted half of that was like drop shipping with the neon stuff but yeah like you don't that's, that's actually quite a big scale do you know what I mean but I didn't have any employees I had no like mm. no one of any experience actually guiding me to do anything and I was a bit like, I think, and I was like, fuck, well, I know something's got to change. I was kind of aware of that. 
probably even more aware of that now but I didn't even know where to start because I was like and I, I guess it comes from hiring I think and that's why I never quite got right yeah because I always had a massive element of imposter syndrome you can you say hiring like, but like hire a COO that's 40 I was like well fucking hell why would they listen to me yeah I mean we we started um like my COO now who's like he's like he's gonna kill me if I say the wrong number I reckon he's 42 now so when he probably joined us he was like 39, 40. Mm. And I was like in my young 20s, but hiring is, is a massive key. But more important than that, like you don't need to have full-time staff. You could do it with freelancers. Like I know some brands that have, I spoke to a brand today that's like doing amazing, but it's only got like six freelancers behind it, you know? Yeah. And it's because it's, people are just time. And if time's used correctly in the right areas, then that's how you can scale. But what's most important is, especially with e-com is like, how are you driving traffic? What's it costing? And what are they buying? And what's the lifetime value of that customer? And that's increased by like repeat purchase on more product. That's literally it. And you can go from, there's no, there's no, if you can build on that, there's no way it wouldn't scale. Yeah. Cause it's not, I understand like hiring, that's only just, you just, when you hire, you just acquire time. Yeah. So if you can, if you can learn to like manage people and use their time most effectively, then cause you can't do it on your own. And like, I was dead lucky because I had my two best mates, right? And like, mm. the more time that goes, it's like, I was so lucky with that. And even now, like one of my um, co-founders has left the business, uh, but the one who's st still at the moment, Gwil, is like, we're just a perfect match because I'm not very good at detail. I quite like the big picture stuff, but he's very happy to get his head down and like, he grafts his ass off. So that we kind of have this like approach where like I'll probably have like six or seven ideas um, and together we'll like nail down like two, but he's like really good at like hammering things through to the end. Whereas I'm like quite all over the shop. So we, I was lucky with that because we didn't need to hire staff because we had three of us at the time. Like uh, Matty who, who left early, he was like dead creative as well. So mm. especially for you, like being a solo founder and you've got great advisors around you and like people and well, stuff, this but, time around yeah um you're gonna have to hire because you can't do it on your own mm. right i want to pick up that point you said you reckon zero to a million or whatever is harder hardest bit then i don't know one to 30 million do you actually think that 100 i mean yeah i've got no evidence otherwise it's interesting so by that time you've 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 created a brand you've got the concept mm. people are buying into the product like you have customers. So if you can have a thousand customers, why can't you have 5,000? If you have 5,000, why can't you have 10,000? If you have 10,000, why can't you have 100,000? And before you know it, you're a global brand. So it's like, if you can prove that concept, I mean, especially nowadays you can, that can still be wrong because you can, you can raise money, you can acquire customers for too much money. So you can artificially acquire customers at a big loss. And you can still achieve scale, but is it gonna be, is it going to become a, a big brand or is it just pure money is going to force it through? Whereas what you've done, which is before with no financial backing and done it yourself, you've built something to a certain size and it's just a case of like doing more of the same, mm. if you like, or like adding more products or increasing the ad budget, you know? So, so yeah. why would, what's happened with other brands that you've seen that get to a certain size, what stops them from growing, would you say? 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say, because like, if, if that's the easiest part, why is it that you see so many brands do a few million in revenue, you don't see that many do 10 plus, and you certainly don't see that many do like 30 plus million in revenue? Mm. I don't know, I mean, yeah, I've never got to that level yet. I guess it depends I, on the I, concept. I, think, I feel like it, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, I think a lot of brands could get to like 10 mil plus. Like, I feel like anything could, if you do it well. But doing it well is the hard part. I think that's probably... I mean, I learned the hard way they're not having a proper team and having ex- more like having proper experience on board, whether that's just even from a financial perspective, which is probably the area that I fucked up the most, to be honest. You know, having management accounts that are three months late from an overpriced old school account that don't understand the business model, all that sort of shit. And then, you know, having, having an Amex that fucking runs <laughs> up a large number. Um, that was definitely where I got it most wrong. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, I mean, that's why, fucking annoying dog. That's why I have gone down the investment route primarily. Cause like, I don't think, I don't think you even need 250 grand to start a brand. Like, um, you don't at all. Like you can start a brand. I could have started that brand for probably 10 grand, which most people can get together. You know, I, I certainly had 10 grand. I wasn't completely fucked. Um, but the main logic was, actually by getting people to invest money then I've got invested interests and intentions from smart people mm-hmm. so three of the people that invested are my mates all of which are fucking smart cunts I'm, I'm fortunate to have a good network in that mm-hmm. respect and they all run econ brands like yeah. 10 million pound plus econ brands yeah and then two of the other guys aren't in econ specifically but they've they've been down the whole they've both made a shitload of money in other areas by like raising money and more, more like the corporate side can kind of add that like like financial perspective I suppose so it seems like a pretty good deal it almost feels like I'm getting paid to get told what they helped kind of yeah. do you know what I mean yeah um, but yeah it's taken me fucking seven years of trying a bunch of different things to realise that actually I can't do it all myself even though I think I probably still ignorantly think that you know I, I could because I'm pretty good at a lot of stuff when it comes to e-com not so much like the finances for sure but on, on the front end at least and obviously yeah when you when you start something yourself you have to be good at everything but I'll be decent yeah but then my problem has been not letting go to let someone else do it delegation yeah but then it's like by definition can't, can't fucking scale mm-hmm. so yeah that's what I think but why do you think most brands can't get to get get past that initial like maybe a few million in revenue I mean it does depend on what category you're playing in so like have, is it like is it a business or is it a Facebook ad business is like a different well, yeah. thing yeah. so like say say if you sell I don't know say if you have a generic product like I don't know let's just say t-shirts for example and you can you know you can drive a, cost, uh, a, a visitor or you know you can drive a purchase for like 30 quid and you use Facebook ads and your t-shirt's 40 quid and it costs a fiver. So you know you've got like a fiver margin on per product. Mm. So you just ramp the ads up and like sell as much as possible. But what is that customer actually getting? And are they going to repurchase? So like, if you don't have any more products than that, then they're not going to come back. Is it actually a good quality product? So if it's a good quality product, they'll probably come back and use the same brand. Yeah. Um, All the other other things that go into it um, are important, but... Yeah, it comes down to the fundamentals, I think. Um, like, say, like, 
I mean, I don't actually know that much about it. But you know the Neon Beach stuff that you did. Is it yeah. called Neon Beach? Yeah. Is that right? So Fucking horror story. Like how many? So you obviously scaled that to a good size. How many people buy neon signs? Like loads. You've got about eight in here, I think. But like yeah, at some point, at some point, like especially a buyer is going to look at that and go, okay, well, how big is this market? And is it like a trend-driven thing? I still think there can be <laughs> there can be a billion pound revenue neon business. Yeah, I honestly do. Yeah. It's not it's not been made yet. I'm not going to do it, unfortunately, but. But that's like another one is like, if you buy one, do you need two? Mm. If you buy it's two, it's very high AOV, which is great, but it's yeah. problematic in a lot of other areas. Yeah. Um, and like, what's the, and what's the, what was the cost margin for those? Like so 60%. It's a decent margin. Yeah. So you saw that with the bedding industry, like there's all these uh, D2C like bedding companies came out, which did an absolutely Yeah, like Casper, Eve, fucking everyone's name. So like the revenue goes through the roof because every order is like 600 quid. Mm. But then... And they can spend 500 to get a customer. Spend 500 to get a customer, but how many beds do you need? Yeah, you know? exactly. So the, exactly. So everyone dives in it, it great, loads, loads of money. They do amazingly successful, but I don't know. But I'm assuming they lose still... money forever until they get acquired or IPO or IPO. some bullshit. Um, so to answer your question about why don't others scale, I think it is just down to the category it's in, um, like the skill of the founder. Like if you can, and I had a conversation with a um, a lady today who's got like a really cool idea for a new brand. And she was like asking me like, what do I need to focus on? And I think, and she's in the process of raising a lot of money. Yeah. And like my concern is when someone raises a lot of money is like, you go, okay, so I've got my product. And as a founder, it's like, I'll use agency for ads. I'll use an agency for manufacturing. I'll use an agency for branding. I'll use an agency for web development. Mm. And that's definitely not going to work because what you need to understand is if you're building a brand like Hairburst or like what you're going to do in the future, which is a consumer brand, you're not the manufacturer. Like web design is like a a one-off like thing you need to do, but really what you are is a marketer. But that's it. Like you you drive revenue for that brand. So that's the main focus. So I, I said to her today, I was like, you need to get into the detail of whether it's their influencer marketing, Facebook ads, TikTok ads, TikTok content, whatever. Like they're, the job of a founder for these types of businesses is to market. Mm. So if they don't understand that, they're going to struggle to scale or teach other people in the team to do the same skill. And that's why yeah. you can launch like five or six different brands because you understand Facebook ads, which you can apply to TikTok ads. So you just yeah. apply that to anything. Yeah, one thing I think I realised, and be careful not to fucking call anyone out, but I feel like you can, I don't know, you can have all the fucking degrees and MBAs and X, Y, Z on paper in the world. But if you don't have that like entrepreneurial creative initiative, it's maybe one way of putting it, like it just isn't going to work. Like I feel like you can hire those roles way easier than you can hire... As in, like, I don't think, like, an accountant who's wants to start a brand as a, as a founder is going to work, whereas... Yo, fellas, quick one. You may or may not have noticed there's been a bit of merch, so to speak, in recent episodes. We've got two different things. We've got some of the retro-style OG Neon Beach posters that designed, like, four years ago. You may have seen it on my Instagram. And then we've got some of the best-selling OG viral-style neon signs that basically did start that entire craze about two years ago now. So, yeah, if you want to add something to your home office, your living room, just anywhere sick, basically, that you want to add that extra thing to and support the channel, then you can check that out. Link is in the bio, midnight.co forward slash shop and yeah just an aesthetic item to complement the process I suppose cheers for watching and enjoy the rest of the pod you know like every every founder I know in an e-com perspective started because they had 
like a genuine interest in the products or mar- broadly marketing and then then you kind of figure out the other bits later but i feel like it's the the founders that don't figure and, and the businesses and brands that don't figure out the other bits i.e like the logistics like like you were saying and like the finances like the less glamorous shit because everyone goes on youtube and teaches themselves e-com now do you know what i mean like you're 18 or whatever you google how to make money online e-commerce so why did you what brought you to learn how to do facebook ads was literally just a natural progression I was in a Facebook group and then literally self-taught back in like 2015 and this is back when it was so cheap mm. and then you yeah you build up and then it's like experience breeds confidence because yeah. do you know what I mean I think part of the problem compound interest of confidence almost because once you start yeah. to get the sales through it's a drug and then it takes you it's like you know yeah because like even now it's been really frustrating because I've, I've not woken up looking at a Shopify dashboard for like the past nine months now. Mm-hmm. And that was my life before, like fucking first thing in the morning, last thing at night. But because I know I've been to that scale before, it's like, of course I could do it again. It's the same principles apply. I'll, I'll just do it better now and hopefully more sustainably. Mm. But something drove you to, because I had this conversation with um, Lewis from Gymshark who I did his podcast mm. just after the deal. And we were having a conversation around like, because he, he's quite, you can tell from like how he speaks, he just like dives in. Yeah. And I think you're a bit like that. You'll just like dive in. Yeah. Whereas I, I don't, well, for whatever reason, I like to really like learn loads before I try something, mm. which is probably, it's like a bit of a slower way, but it's maybe why I've also just like happy to stay with like one brand for yeah. a period of time maybe. Because like you're probably looking around seeing like 10 different things that you could do. Um and apply that skill set whereas it's a bit different for us but yeah I think because his point was you just need to dive in and you have to be like able to do that but I was always I always thought that you need I needed to see something or learn something before I did it but something obviously drove you to learn the Facebook ads because that going back to the reason why I'm saying it is like there's a lot of founders that don't know that so like they will get a Facebook ads agency and me and you know that if you just have a product and go to an agency, mm. it's very unlikely to work. One, because you've got to pay the agency, which is probably your whole margin. And two, they probably don't, they definitely can't do it as good as you can. Yeah, I think, well, I've worked with so many agencies and like, I definitely won't be running my own Facebook ads for, for my new brand, but having done it, I, know, I can like smell bullshit. You can manage you know the I mean? agency. You've got the context. Yeah. Because, yeah, I think it's super important. That's why I would always say like, do... I will definitely do the customer service myself for at least a month mm. because I need to know it better than anyone. I need to know every little thing better than everyone, mm-hmm. um, which is what I've tried to do in the past. Um, and yeah, if it wasn't for fucking neon, it would have been fine. But um, even like finances, like I say, I'm not good at finances. I mean, I have a basic understanding of a P&L, obviously. Like, yeah, maybe l- less so on like cash flows and shit. But yeah, I think people seem to forget like I mean like even comments like the, the sort of DMs I get from this podcast which is you know the oldest is genuinely younger like younger than me even like early 20s whatever and people will be like you know how do I do this how do I do this I think there's just like people forget that re- like, you have to have skills to start mm-hmm. a business an e-com yeah. business of any type do you know what I mean like I think a lot of people and I was going to ask you this because a lot of people now I think get into like e-commerce and Shopify because it's like the new fucking buzz thing yeah. especially like since COVID it's like online like let's make online money and drive a Lambo mm-hmm. but obviously it's not that and like when, when you started 
was before that was all like cool on like Instagram and shit. Mm. Whereas now it's like every everyone in the fucking dog has got an econ brand or a store of some sort. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I think now maybe a lot of people are getting into it that don't actually have a genuine passion for like the fundamentals like marketing product branding because I, I used to draw logos that like, i used to design logos that was mm-hmm. legit and that became a website which became my first econ brand mm-hmm. and that, it was like a gradual progression so like even now like, i do all my own branding and shit because yeah. that's the bit that's where i started whereas people now feel like not everyone but potentially they're starting with oh i want a fucking urus so i should figure out how to make this online thing work mm-hmm. and then then that's probably not a sustainable interest um whereas for me yeah i've, I've not been sustainable on one thing but it's always been econ like that's just the one thing i've always wanted to do and have done mm-hmm. but yeah I, I don't even know where i'm going with that question but i guess to bring it back to hairburst what like was there a period when it you know it's like you intentionally made it more formal like i don't know maybe brought in like a coo an fd or whatever and like, and how deep into the business was that, and and what was the sort of scale at, and what was the impact of that? Um, it started to become so. I always sort of going back to start with literally like three guys, like twenty three, twenty four. Mm. It was so much fun. Like we lived together, we worked together, and we started to bring staff in, and it was like I had to just take on like the serious guy role because I was like otherwise everyone's just like loads of mates just having a great time and it was that yeah. to start with and it was like we're buzzing because everyone loved working there we're all very engaged with the staff and we were like growing the team like now we've got I think it's close to 50 people now um, and we're still the same but you do have to put a level of like I don't know steadiness in there mm. um, so we our first senior hire was Matt so he came in as our chief commercial officer and he was like quite good because he was a bit older, had more experience working in like corporate cultures and stuff. And we kind of did go through that phase. So when you're talking about real brand, I think it was a few senior hires do sort of make you realise a bit, especially when you're in your young 20s. Mm. Um, but the when you talk about the imposter thing, I don't think I ever had that. Interesting. I, I don't think I ever had that. that. I was like, you kind of just, after a few years, you just, don't know, see a few other young successful people and I suppose going back to when I was working in an agency you kind of meet these business owners and I was I had the reverse thing so I'd like meet a business owner and the business might be doing like 10 mil or whatever mm. selling sheds or like bedding like and I'd be sat there thinking like why are you not marketing through social media like why have you not got an Instagram yeah. page and I kind of I always just started to get confidence from that and think I could do it better so yeah I, if they can do it you can do it so I kind of had the reverse thing where I had like a lot of confidence from from that as opposed to like thinking I couldn't, I don't know. Maybe that was, but your journey takes like different stages and that was like a big thing for me. So maybe that's yeah. what stopped that from happening maybe. Um, Cause I know that's quite common, especially for like young founders. Mm. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, when did it get more serious? I think just a few more senior hires. Like when I say we went through the stage of like wanting to make a bit of money to travel and all that kind of stuff. When, when we realised we were onto something, it was, that was, it kind of like changed your mindset a little bit. Yeah. Like imagine if you had a brand that was doing, like you said, you get to like two or three mil rev and it's just you and a few freelance, whatever. But then, yeah. you, but then you can see how to get to like 10. Yeah, because- You'd probably like think, oh shit. That's exactly what I'm thinking now. So I, I used to, 
yeah, I guess like did the whole fucking Bali thing and all that, and that's sick. And then, yes, yeah, spent too much money on like stupid cars, or whatever. But now, yeah, it's very. I don't know. I feel like I'm running out of time almost, which is probably toxic, but also motivating. It's like fuck. If I actually want to do it big, God like focus properly get this next one right because if I don't get the next one right like fucking hell who's going to get it right sort of what thing. do you mean by running out of time because that's bollocks well yeah honestly <laughs> because because I've, I'd always told myself you know I'd like f- be re- retired by 30 you know whatever like but I guess retired in my head was like 100 million quid <laughs> when now I realise it's not that yeah. um, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's probably just like, it's a bit of a chip in my shoulder. It's always been a bit of a chip in my shoulder, I think. Like, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to get fucking rich doing something I like in it. Mm. And, and it, it was never about the money either. Like, kind of like you were saying, for me, I've, I've always, I mean, you definitely have that. I don't at this stage, but um, like the freedom. Because, mm. yeah, like, even when I was younger, I just like, I don't know, I just wanted to go to cool places and do interesting shit, which requires a monetary fucking form. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It was never like, I want to make money so I can be a cunt. Like, mm. Just like freedom and excitement and money's the vehicle that allows that. But when you talk about time, like I've got friends who are like my age, like I'm 32 now and they've like, just from having conversations, like maybe they've worked in a job for like five or six years and they they might, something. sometimes people say things like, oh, like I wish I, when I was younger, I did like a business. And I'm like, you're so young, man. And like, I think probably it's probably partly due to like instagram and yeah and things like that where but i'm sure there's i read this stupid stat and it's going to be completely wrong but i'm sure like the average age of a successful business startup is like the founder's like 37 or something yeah i think I read that like, literally and then like if you just look at things like that you'll probably look back in like 10 years time and be like fucking i was so young and i was thinking those things because i say it to my friends now i'm like you could literally spend, I mean, you do have to allocate time. That's the thing. And you, as you get older, you get, obviously people get married, have kids, whatever. And it takes you time. And then you get more involved in the job that you're doing or whatever. But if you can find like an hour a day just to like develop yourself and learn things that we've been discussing, like Facebook ads, influencers, whatever. Mm. You, anyone can do it at any age, like literally anyone. Um, so if you think you're running out of time, yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> and even if it's not yeah. this one, it's the next one. Like, you, no, be this you probably a bit in, feel it yeah yeah well, I guess yeah no it's, it's definitely like social pressures it's also because I mean yeah like I've definitely got an unusually successful friend group like especially given like like certain people younger than me like some older which is good but I guess yeah like I'd rather be like a small fish in a big pond than a big fish in a small pond, do you know what I mean? Which is mm-hmm. like why I very intentionally like moved to London a few years ago, all, all that sort of shit. I did the same thing pretty much for that reason. Yeah, I think it's, well, I think if you're done into self-development and shit, you don't want to be everyone telling you you've made it, but you've only made it in Scunthorpe or your colleagues, mm. do you know what I mean? Whether it's a different, it's just a different culture and different pool of people. But yeah, I, I'm probably so how, a bit, how I'm probably that bit myself time-wise. How does that affect you? So does it make you feel more pressure because you've, some of your friends are doing like really well? Or does it motivate you to think shit? Oh, it's like, definitely net net beneficial for sure. Yeah. Um, like there was someone on Twitter I was reading, I started using Twitter loads. 
It's like, I'd rather all my mates made more money than me because not that it's all about money, but like in a business sense, because then mm. it's like, fuck, I'm the one that needs to, to keep up rather than being, I don't know. Yeah, in circles where that's not the case, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's a net benefit for sure. Um, also, like if they're genuine friends, like which the friends I'm referring to mentally are, like it's not about the money. Like if they, you know, if they've had a good year, they'll pay for something and vice versa. Hmm. Which has kind of gone on now recently, but I'm not going to name names. Um, but yeah, I think it's a net benefit for sure. Um, like so many people message me on the pod actually, saying how how have you got such a good network? And I'm like, fuck, I don't know. Just be honest with people and have a few drinks with them in, in a relevant <laughs> scenario is usually how it goes. Yeah. Um, like even fucking meeting you before this. I think I just DM'd you, didn't I? Like if you don't ask, you don't get sort of thing. Mm. Same with people. Yeah. Like girls, guys, business, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I think I've always been just quite friendly in that respect. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a good thing. But I'm probably not running out of time, but I do put pressure on myself because of certain circles and shit. I, I, I did have the same thing where I didn't think I was running out of time, but I had like almost like an element of like restless discontent in like my current situation. Mm. And I was, but that's like a, that's the driving force behind learning how to make it work. So you definitely need a bit of that. I think if you're, if you're, and you have that now, so like whether it's, because what's happened in the past or like you know you can do it but you just haven't found the right thing or this like next thing's like really got you up for it and you're like really excited whatever it is you need to be driven right you can't just yeah you have to have some element of like a bit of a chip on your shoulder or something to like drive you yeah and I think um, I feel like I've got an even bigger chip on my shoulder recently to be honest yeah <laughs> but, yeah <laughs> but he's a driver like a lot of some people like, I'm trying, it's always like hard to figure out like where does drive come from? It always comes from something. Whether it's a drive to like win at sport, learn something, like learn how to do business or whatever, you have to have it from somewhere. And you've obviously got that from potentially your past or like you said, being surrounded by great people and it gives you confidence or whatever, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, do, do you think that, I'm kind of going off tangent, but we'll come back. Do you think like that entrepreneurialism is genetic like do you think it's nature or nurture basically so I don't think I was a natural entrepreneur if you like mm. like I never sold like sweets at school or did like the lemonade stand or anything like that like yeah. I just wanted to play football and have a laugh with my mates yeah um, think I like winning at stuff and I like being competitive about stuff um, so I would I'm almost like I manufactured it in my life like I realised at like 18 right if you want to live like a full life you don't need like 100 million or whatever <laughs> you just need enough money to be able to cover freedom basically um, and that was that became like my ambition it wasn't like I was I don't know you know you hit like a lot of people especially probably econ people have that story like I don't know if you had that story where you was like one of my co-founders he was like that he used to sell like Mars bars at school or whatever and used to yeah. make like enough money to buy his new football boots and stuff like that. He was like quite a traditional entrepreneur. I never had that. Yeah, but I realised that you have to have some element of money to live a full life. So that's, that became like my plan. And then 
I figured that out, which is part of my personality. When, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I'd, so to answer your question, I'd yeah. nurture for sure. Mm. Yeah. Probably is to an extent. Probably, I guess it's, there's exceptions to every rule in there. Mm. And there's probably so many different cases either, either way. Mm. But I want to say I'm like, it's like again, like the, the current business partner who's still in the business now, he's, he, he, he probably is more of a natural entrepreneur than I am. But like, the way most businesses I see now is like, it's almost like baking a cake. So you have like, what do you need? You need like time and energy, funds and an idea. Mm. And like to be able to see that from like a view, like I said before, like I'm kind of all over the place, but I've got quite an analytical personality. So I could almost like see that. So like time and energy, idea, capital, and like just putting the right things together as like almost like baking a cake to get it into the position where it can grow. Um, Whereas like a lot of entrepreneurs are just like, it's just like day after day, just like proper grinders. I don't know if if I'm that type, but I don't, like I said, I think I've manufactured myself to be an entrepreneur. Um, maybe you might even be more natural. The way you jump around is like quite an entrepreneurial trait, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Overthinker. <laughs> so on that as well then, because there's a few things we want to go into. You mentioned... Well, to me, before the podcast, when we'd met before, like you'd taken quite a bit of money out of the business before you'd ever exited, which again we'll come on to. So I suppose two parts there. Like, at what point did the business get to a stage where you thought, "Fuck!" Like, actually making some serious dollar here. Hmm. And, and like, secondly, why did you take it out rather than reinvest it? Like, was it a de-risk thing? Like. Was it to do with like the kind of the financial plan that you sort of just mentioned? So we had no external external um, investors. It was all like our own capital, mm. which is like good and bad. So one, we had no money, but two, when we didn't manage to get money, it was ours. So from like year two onwards, if we did like I don't know five six hundred k, bit da was probably something that happened in like the second year, let's say. But that's insane for the second year for a start. Yeah, it was it was so lean, man. We had like, like by this point, probably had like three or four different products. But we mm-hmm. had like no staff. Office was three hundred quid a month. There's like a lot of profit there. So yeah. again, like if I did it again, I'd pile that back into growth because now I've like made my money. But back then, you've got like you've gone from having a phone for you job to running this brand that's making like a lot of money. You, it was like well we were kind of could do both. We could grow it and also take the capital away. Yeah. But it was also like from an early stage business, you're like, this is amazing. Like the buzz was like insane, like how well it was going. And like, just like the excitement of it was just so good. It's still the best, best times are always the start, I think. But yeah, we just take it, we just took it out. And if I wouldn't spend it, it was like straight into index funds, like everything. Like literally we were like printing money, but it's like bang, bang, bang into savings. So then that was kind of like, again, like, cause my goal was travel. That wasn't expensive. So if you have like, and this is like super safe investments as well. Like I'm talking like 7% a year, yeah. like super broad index funds. If you can get to like a million quid in that, in this index fund, you're making 70 grand a year. Mm. I only really needed like 40 or 50 to live my lifestyle. So then you just like, I was like, you're passive from then on. Yeah. So. I mean, later in the story, obviously made a lot more money and built that even higher and became even more free. But you don't like, 
there's only a certain amount that one person needs to live like a fulfilled life and I don't think it's that much yeah I mean for me I, anyway I will come back to the actual business side in a second there's a few things I want to go into but, but just on that because like maybe it's just my personality again like the second I made any decent money I just bought a fucking car mm. I didn't even think like honestly I think I said it on a previous pod like the money I was making drop shipping when I was 22 if I put that in Ethereum like, I'd be fucking sorted I'd, I'd have like 30 mil like literally mm. could have would have should have whatever but like I don't know like did that were you getting like advice or was that just the logical thing in your brain to do at the time because it, yeah. it definitely wasn't mine the first time I had, I, had, I had this like fear of like it going away mm. it was like a fear of like we're making all this money but what's to say that it's going to continue like maybe one of the, like the big conglomerates that like you can leave or something make like a similar product or brand or whatever or like I don't know so yeah. I just like I mean it's not imposter syndrome because I was like it was going really well but I was like what if like something bad happened and I had this like that that was like a few years of that so it was always just save 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 and like bang it in the fund and then that's mine you know <laughs> so mm. it was like safety first approach yeah um and then yeah as I got older it started to get a bit silly so it was like I'd got to a point where I was like I've saved so much money it was like so I started to spend a little bit but even now like my life's not that different to when like even back to like second year third year of hairburst really yeah um, what was your question again well, it was kind of that I mean our approach to the money yeah I mean like do you think as well a brand can be that profitable in this day and age, at that age? Or do you think that was, you know, I get, well, earlier on in like the e-com gold rush? Mm. I mean, it definitely can. I would say it was so it was so early in Instagram. Like e-com was around before, like I said, like my protein. I think that was founded in 2004 or something like that. Yeah. And it exited uh, as we got started. But mm. I would say that was a unique it was very early in Insta. It wasn't early in e-com because e-com was, like I said, been going a while, but Instagram and influencers and pages and Facebook and all that was like very early. So I think it was probably like you always need a bit of luck. And I'd say we had that because we were early, but we spotted it as well. So yeah. it's a mixture of both really. Like you find opportunities from being curious. Mm-hmm. And that's always been part of my character. Um, but I yeah. do think it's, do I think it's possible now? Yeah. I see brands, like I'm quite an active angel investor now. And what I'm doing now is also buying brands as well. And I see super young brands being like super successful early still um was it easier back then yeah is it still possible now yeah i'd say yes yeah i want to come into wholesale shit because i feel like that's an element of business that no one in like social media and twitter and stuff talks about because like it's all e-com 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 yeah obviously you mentioned like twenty thousand stores and shit like how soon did wholesale become part of the business yeah. and why was there like logic behind it yeah so let's say so again it's like when I said about like I was scared that it was going to go away so I was like mm. just hemorrhaging the cash Um, it was all about diversification yeah. so I was like building um, we relied heavily on like Facebook ads and influencers so for me it was like how else can we generate revenue Yeah, and those brands that I looked up to that were in stores now 
they'd what you class as like real brands. I mean, it was a, the econ yeah. brand. But I basically compiled like loads of, um, loads of using Google Trends. I used to compile like a lot of like visits to websites for other brands. And I used to track ours against competitors, but not like econ competitors, like real competitors. Like if you go into Holland and Barrett, that was our first retailer. There's probably eight brands in that store. And I used to look at their Google Trends and like how their traffic mapped from like 10 years ago to now, however far back Google Trends went. Mm. And I could see our brand like doing really well in terms of like searches. And I was like, well, if that brand's in there and we're, and at one point we started to get like more searches than some of the brands that are on shelf. And I was like, well, yeah. why can't we be on shelf? So I've literally printed out this full like map of like how different brands from like a traditional market are mapping against like us as an econ brand and why we're going to surpass and like made a story. Um, sent it to um, Holden Barrett buyer, went for a meeting, got in, like just went on sales mode. So it came from you rather than them to start with? Yeah. But I think yeah. they were in particular, like I've spoke to, it took us ages to get into the US, ages. And I think those particular buyers at that particular time were taking interest into social media brands. And now it's like, I mean, I actually spoke to a guy today who launched in 2019, which is not long ago. Mm. Literally met him today. Really cool brand. Yeah. He had a fairly unique concept um, with no social media, didn't even launch, and he managed to get straight into retail because it was a cool idea. Yeah. Because what I would have said, if I didn't meet him, I'd have said to you, like, brands today, like retailers want e-com brands. So build a good social following on any platform, whether it's like TikTok, Instagram, whatever. Um, build some revenue, like show you getting traffic, take it to a retail and they'll be interested. But then met that guy today, which is probably a one-off, but he did it the old fashioned way where it's like, take an idea to a retailer, maybe they stock it and you just fly. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, why retail and wholesale? It was just diversification. And we used to get emails from um, like proper wholesalers from like all over. Like we had one in particular was from Slovakia. Yeah. Just like some random guy messaged us saying like, can we take, can we buy like a hundred units? And we're selling our product for like 25 quid. That hundred units was like, do you know what I mean? Two and a half grand. So we, we just used to listen to like any wholesale offers at the time. Yeah. And how much of a percentage then? I don't know if you can actually say this, but like back then and now was wholesale. Of sales. Yeah, of sales. So it actually snuck up on me. And I'm, again, like if I did it again, I'd do it differently. But we were, this is like probably well into like year three now. Um, mm. With like smashing e-com, um, going to retail. Because you get like big POs. Again, I was like, I was so worried that was it going to last? It was like, if you get a big PO from a retailer. Yeah. Of like a few hundred grand or whatever. It's like, you just, you just like, you just got to take it, right? Mm. But then what happened is they, what a lot of retailers do is they'll stock your product. Um, they'll put an ad on your brand term. So like before you have any other sailors, uh, someone searches for Hairburst. Yeah. It's we're the only seller, right? So you come straight to our website. Mm. Or you get resellers on Amazon, but that wasn't a problem back then. But then the retailer will put an ad on your brand term and obviously try and generate the sale. Now that's like a mixture between that, but also then you get the shelf space. So if they have 750 stores, you get a shelf space. And what I noticed quite quickly was we're going to address a new market. So a customer who might be 23 years old on Instagram follows a particular influencer, buys hair burst. You've got shelf space, maybe someone a bit older 
who's looking for that type of product and chooses Hairburst for a completely different reason. Mm. So it was a way to generate new customers. Yeah. But they take margin. So what happened was we grew revenue, but our EBITDA in the middle stages didn't grow as much as the the top line because we're selling more products, but they're taking more margin. Yeah. And how about payment terms as well? Because I did a tiny little bit of wholesale with, with the jewelry stuff to mm. Culture Kings back in the day, but then they didn't pay me for like, hundred days and I was like what's the fucking point in this <laughs> yeah 90 days and yeah and they did their own pictures and shit and it looked crap I was like it's like that so we were we were okay because we would because our business was still at the very when we started whole, wholesale it took a while for that. that's now half the business but then it was a small amount of the business it was still generate that's why you come so good because you get paid straight away yeah most retails probably 90 days payment terms but you can do something called uh, invoice financing yeah 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 so you'll that. basically sell that debt which is a good debt because it's from a reputable retailer, hopefully to the bank and they'll take a cut and you can get the cash. Mm. So that's like something you can do. Um, so yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I definitely think wholesale, I'd, I'd like to try a bit more of it. I mean, well, I've done very, very, very little of it, but I guess on the flip side, you, I've read about brands that were like fully wholesale and then COVID hits and they're fucked. Shit like that, so. So that was, we were, like my whole thing was like be safety like defensive first like get mm. revenue from multiple different countries and multiple different retailers different channels whatever so what happened when like we've when covid hit like our online sales picked up a little bit but then our retail dropped so we kept, yeah. didn't really benefit it was like a 50 50 thing where like new retailers that were on board and like stopped but then econ picked up a little bit so it kind of just like balanced it out yeah um, whereas now it's like been quite good for us because loads of new retailers have started to onboard again. So yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. Like if you go, that's just a classic case of of not being diversified in terms of channel. And you could say that across like how, how important that is across like supply of products. Like you need to have multiple suppliers for your one particular product in case yeah. one manufacturer goes bust. Or you need to have like, if you only had one retailer, um, you're, you're at mercy of one retailer. So you will kind of want to diversify your revenue, your supply, like everything yeah because like I know you mentioned before like a brand that relies on Facebook or whatever isn't necessarily that valuable and all that shit and that was definitely something that was true of like probably both my brands but definitely Neon so just spending like 15 grand a day on Instagram that if your ad account gets to say well you don't have a business mm. do you reckon if you obviously Hairburst being like 9 years old so on the e-com side if you turned off all paid media do you reckon you'd still Obviously not to maybe to the exact same level, but it would still be much more consistent than, you know, a one-year-old brand that's just throttling Facebook ads. Yeah, if we turned Facebook ads off tomorrow, we'd still generate... I actually don't think our business would... It wouldn't grow as quick, but it'd stay flat, for sure. Because the, like the Facebook ads now don't really impact the retail. Like, people know it's nine years old, you know? Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. So, like... So is that, like, people coming back to buy again? primarily it's yeah. like top of mind awareness and shit yeah 100% and like yeah. when you when you can you hit a critical mass like I, I actually I should probably know but if I was to think across like retail all the different countries we're selling to and the e-com like how many customers actually bought our products would be insane right mm. and then we make really good products which is like super important so word of mouth is obviously a large part of growth as well which is like you can't really measure it but you can usually see it in numbers like when something's growing like at a good rate you can spend all the money you want, but if you've got good products, it will, you'll start to see that kick on effect. Um, so yeah, if we turned ads off or any marketing tomorrow, we'd continue to 
sell. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I think that that's definitely where obviously just age comes into it, innit? And having a good product. Age of the and brand, shit. yeah. Because yeah. there's so many people as well in like the dropshipping space. And, and I've been there in the past. You can fucking throttle something to like hundreds of thousands a month. Mm. But then your ad account gets disabled because your mm. feedback's crap and you're gone overnight. Yeah. Your payment processor gets screwed. But like we gone. sell on um, we sell on Amazon as well. But it's probably only seven eight percent of our overall sales. But they, Amazon just shut our account down like last week. Oh really? Fucking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's not a huge issue because like it's not. I mean, eight percent for one month. It's not ideal, right? And I'm trying to sort that out now, but. It's not ideal, but it's, it's it's because we've got all the other channels that it's not. I don't lose well, don't lose sleep over it. Not much sleep anyway. Yeah, maybe next week if it's not sorted, I might. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, nine years old. Um, I want to come on to like a big topic in a minute, but like the past few years, how has the business looked then? Like obviously, in terms of like team set up, like general scale across shit. Like did COVID change a lot I know you've got an office in Leeds I think my mate's agency so they've actually got an office below you oh really in whatever the building is uh, Yorkshire House yeah he messaged me saying is it is, is it you should ask that hairburst guy if that's the <laughs> office because there's loads of fit girls walking around that's what he said his words <laughs> no comment um, yeah so how, how has it looked like the past few years as a general operation and your involvement prior to the next step um so we've got so how did COVID you said how did COVID impact that so yeah I'm probably asking like seven questions so I made I made a, so how did COVID impact it which is really important actually so like I said sales didn't necessarily get a benefit or a deduction so we kind of like stayed level from a um, staffing point of view I made the mistake of thinking like well, we've got a, we've got a great office in Leeds we've got like staff in London music co-working space down here too but mm we made the decision to hire people in region. So we're selling to 12 different countries now. And because our central functions in the North of England, we kind of wanted people to be based there, but we just opened the floodgates and was like, forget this. Like we can't use the office anyway. So we started to hire people in markets like in the US, in France, in Germany and the different markets we sell into. So that changed, yeah. which was a, a net benefit for sure. For sure. Um, in terms of my involvement, was that a question? Yeah, I guess just like how does how does it look running a business at that scale as a founder at that point? Um, Pre-exit, which we'll get on to. So you kind of so again, like person, everyone's different. Like I kind of have this. I just went like tunnel vision a bit. So you kind of it's growing around you, and you get like more and more people, but you're so fixed on like the numbers and the growth that you kind of just like, I always just stayed like quite tunnel vision. Um, and sometimes you look around and think this is like sick. We've got an unreal office. It's like 50 people here or whatever. Um, you kind of learn that, which is something I learned quite quick is you can't, like I said, you probably can't do it all on your own. Mm. So you have to almost learn. And again, like once we got to that stage, it was like, I really committed to learning about how to actually manage a business because you can, if you've got an issue, you can't sort it because you have yeah. to, trusting other people to sort the issues so you kind of just become you're almost like steering a ship but you can't row because if you start rowing then no one's you know what I mean it's like there's like mm. so many people involved so you have to be very patient so say if I decide tomorrow 
we're going to change this. That could be like a two month thing and I'm not involved in it. And I might be itching to get something sorted because that's like quite a natural thing for, some, for a business owner to be like, but it's almost like a development in, in I kind of like focused on like myself and like grow myself again. So like when you go through the e-commerce stage, you want to learn how to do the Facebook ads, you want to learn how to do influencer. And then mm-hmm. you learn, then we learn how to do the wholesale stuff. And then it was like, right, how do you actually become um, a leader of a business? And then like, again, just like, I've always like relied on books. So it's like probably quite common that people say that, but like I really did because I didn't have a mentor or anything. So like mm-hmm. Jim Collins, good to great. It's like probably a good one for you to read actually. Yeah, I need to read more. Yeah, good to great is good because that talks about that and like the, the journey and taking it from, yeah, like good to great. So I applied myself into learning about new different skills, I would say. Um, and managing a board because you've got, like that comes with its own challenges as well. Yeah. I mean, one little question on that before I move on. Like, what do you think, I suppose like even for me now with this next business, I'm consciously thinking like I need to stop working in the business I need to work on the business like even like pre-revenue right now obviously it's kind of different but like as soon as that launches what should I focus on in terms of becoming trying to position it as a hundred million pound brand in five years which is by the way the absolute plan and like you know reverse engineering it yeah I already realised that I'm way too anal on like doing everything myself like even fucking website stuff like mm-hmm. but obviously there's an no, element of bootstrapping yeah that's good but it's getting that balance right between trying to do it all myself yeah and like hiring to grow yeah so where's that line do you know what I mean so yeah so when you launch it's, it's all about just driving traffic which you know how to do yeah so I just focus on driving the traffic and then once you've got enough data I would then start to like focus on what's actually happening so you might drive mm-hmm. your first like 10,000 visits, but what's actually happening? Like, what's your conversion rate? Okay, your conversion rate's probably, no one's seen it before. It's probably going to be like 0.1 or something, you know? Yeah. And then start to like make adjustments on the website, use the data that you've got, which is like, this is all stuff you know, right? But yeah, yeah. I guess I mean more from like a, like from like a broader speaking, like founder perspective, like assuming I get it to a million quid in the first yeah. eight months or whatever of 2022, which I will. That's the plan. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, over those months when that's happening, like what should I be thinking about from like a broader perspective, positioning it to be able to do 50 million in three yeah. years? So what I used to do was, let's, yeah, right, you've got me got me thinking now. So yeah, it was, I know I can do the first bit. It was all about, given. so it's all about like making yourself redundant in every situation you find yourself in. So like going back to Hairburst, customer service took me four hours a day mm. and packing took me, six hours a day so I've got 10 hours there yeah so when it's like like when you think about like allocating the job essentially of building a business allocating like time capital and resources so you've got resources because I know you've raised some money you've got time because you work on it full time but how you allocate that time is going to be important and like I agree with what you're saying about the customer service thing and investing time and doing it yourself because that's where you get all your most your most of your feedback mm. Yeah, at the very but start at least. Eventually you'll outsource that or you'll hire somebody to do that. You'll hire, you're probably using a third party logistics from when you start. Yeah. And it's just about like constantly reevaluating where your time's going, which I don't think enough people do. It's like I'd really like focus on, and I actually used to do this with a journal again. I used to write this stuff down. So it was before I started Hairburst and during, it's like, 
I'd just like monitor the clock. So I'd finish the day, I'd know that I spent, I spent four hours on customer service, I spent six hours packing, I spent two hours at the gym, yeah. and I spent this much time chatting shit with my mates or whatever. And then you just like, it's a process of elimination and you'll start to see like, okay, and once the revenue's coming in and you're driving the traffic, it is a case of scale up, but it's all about your time. And I see a lot of, a lot of when you're talking about like going for the next stage, that's ultimately what it's going to be about is allocating your time better. Because yeah. when, you, when you've got revenue and you've got traffic, like, can you get more of it? Yes, no. Can you replicate what you've done in the UK in different markets? Yes, no. What do you need to do to do that? Get translators, hire staff in those regions and just like a system process. Because mm. you'll probably, what, what do you reckon? Okay, go back a stage. When you're doing previous brands, where does your, most of your time go? Traffic generation, ultimately. And therefore revenue generation. So traffic generation and re- revenue generation. So, you, so you, I was very good at getting sales. So you, you're uh, monitoring the Facebook ads, which is like... Yeah, I mean, yeah. It used to creating content. primarily that. And that was like where it starts. Because I think the one thing I'm good at is, um, in hindsight, is putting the... Like, there's loads of terms for this, like, keeping the main thing the main thing like get fucking revenue like yeah. so I don't know I think there's a lot of people and I've made many mistakes as well but that is the one thing I'm good at is like I know if there's no customers it doesn't fucking matter so like even with the first version of the first product I just showed you before I know that's 80% there it's probably not 100% there mm. but I'd much rather get something to market ASAP yeah, and start getting data now 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 I don't want to wait a year to perfect it just based on my feedback do you know what I mean I'd rather we sell 10,000 of them in the first four months and and yeah. there's a lot of things wrong you get the feedback etc etc and then we can iterate and fucking throttle it and go no I agree so that's always been my approach it's definitely been a high risk approach when it's gone wrong because I just put if it's working literally like with Neon it, got, it went to like 15 grand a day I'd spend mm. in like four months what markets are you selling in? pretty much only the UK and US do you know what I mean? so imagine if you and it wasn't even localized currency or anything. And like Facebook has working every country. Right. Like Facebook has working every country. Yeah. So the only thing stopping you selling in France was man, I don't know if French people like neon signs. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just that's a category thing. Mm. But if you could if you could go from what that was to like the next like five or six times in revenue would be different markets. Because you had a proven model, you had a product that people Probably wanted. Horizontal scaling, yeah. Yeah. Different markets. Because you only can get so big in one market and you had a product, you knew how to do the Facebook ads. So you were literally, you're paying a translator away from scaling in a whole new market. Yeah, legit. If if that if that's the type of product that they wanted that market, I don't know. UK and US are quite similar, right? So that was an obvious two markets to go for. Yeah. And actually, like, we really struggled in the US, which is a long, long story, but the US is almost like so big that like some US brands there's absolutely no need to go into any other market because it's that big. Mm. But for the UK, all depending on the ambitions of the founder and what you're trying to achieve, but for something that's quite niche, like neon signs. I don't think it is niche. That's why I say, I honestly think there can be a billion pound revenue brand. I mean, hey, I do I do that about a brand I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that next. Yeah, coming on to, I guess, the next section. Um, just the way I was thinking about this pod. The deal with JD, um, which I feel like is probably what everyone wants to fucking do when they start a brand, is just sell it and make a fuckload of money, go to Dubai for two months, or whatever, whatever you did. Like, where did that? 
was that like a plan? Uh, did that ever? Did you ever start to think about? Oh, we want to sell. Sell the business, or was it never even on the radar until the conversation started? It was never on the radar. It was never a plan until after about year five, we started to get courted by loads of corporate finance guys. So I just entertained conversations. Um, I knew what some competitors were selling for and it was like, hmm, we're doing quite well here, but <laughs> if we sold some of it, we could probably get like more money. But mm. by this time I already was really wealthy and I'd, I was making a lot of money from like investments that I was doing and stuff like that. So it was never a plan. Um, it became a plan and it was it was like a ruthless like two years that process because you kind of like like JD had been absolutely amazing and I'm so happy with the deal that I did in the end but there's a good 18 months for that where I'm like speaking to different buyers like trying to figure out which one I want to work with doing DD processes like telling everyone about how we run our business which nobody really wants to do like I didn't want to sit in front of like buyers and like spill the beans on like why we've been so successful you know when you've got no in the definite they might not even buy it mm. you know so you kind of go through this process of like investors just wanting to know how we work one to understand if it's a good buy if it's sustainable if it can grow further if they can sell it for more money in the future so they are doing the right thing by going into detail but when you've had like a private brand with your mates for like seven years to then have to explain for the first time to like complete strangers who you just met for the first time like how this business works it's like you don't really want to do that mm. you know so and I can understand why an exit is attractive to founders nowadays because there's so many examples of like good exits but like I'm no happier now I've exited than when I was not and yes the extra money is good to have than not to have but I would I mean it depends on the business like a lot of businesses especially like the new ones that are VC backed it's almost it's from like from birth it's its goal because you've got VC investors they need to get cash out you're growing it to sell it you're pouring all the EBITDA back into growth you can't take it as a founder because your VC terms will probably say that any capital is they need to be paid back all their money before you can take a penny yeah. and stuff like that mm. Like a bit different with what you've done because you've raised money from angels where you like your mates and stuff. So that's like really cool, but going on a bit of a tangent. So to answer your question, it wasn't the initial plan. After six years of graft and building a brand, it became a plan. Um, and we then went through like a two year process of finding the right buyer. And right at the end, we found it, thankfully. How does that conversation even start? Is it like literally like an email with a tempting number or what? Um, to even get you engaged in obviously spilling the beans like you said so first things first and I've seen like I guess we're talking about like advice for like brand owners that want to sell or might sell in the future is you need a corporate finance advisor if it gets to a certain size and there's many out there like you have to pick a good one because they are gonna like I was always quite independent in how I thought and I had an end goal and I was that's what I was going to take. But you speak to these people over and over again and they do infiltrate your beliefs of like valuation, what the best thing is to do. And it's a really high pressure moment. And you're always, like when I was deciding to sell, I spoke to 
so many business founders who have gone through the process who were kind kind enough to share their time with me mm. like really successful guys who have exited and I was like looking for like anyone to help because I had no one to answer to I like sorry not anyone to answer to I had nobody to like advise me on what the best thing is to do yeah you know and it's like a big moment you've you've built this thing for like so long so how does it start you appoint a corporate finance advisor so I picked one that had done but I mean is that before anyone even approaches you where's so, it what's the incentive okay. to appoint someone sorry yeah just go back so we started to get messages saying from various different uh, groups like private equity groups mm. first for private equity because they're like all over it yeah so like oh we're so and so capital like we love the brand we'd love to have a chat da, da, da. so I started to have those conversations and I was like people are like starting to waft numbers out I'm like hmm I don't even know where I don't even know how I've initially heard that like corporate finance people were actually like a thing I honestly don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know if a P fund, because I initially started to have these conversations myself and then there were a lot of conversations and then I'm spending, like, you know, I'm talking about my diary, like, where's my time going? I'm spending like two hours a day speaking to like these people and like they probably started to ask me stuff that I didn't have full confidence that I was making the most of that. I didn't, I kind of felt a bit on my depth, I would say, mm. but at the very start of these things. So again, well, two things. One, I bought like every private equity book on Amazon and just like plowed into that. So like yeah. how do private equity businesses think? What returns do they want? What's like the mistakes that founders make? Like that whole, honestly, that was like, just dived into that and then I appointed a corporate finance advisor. And they they did approach me maybe four years before exit. I'm getting a bit mixed up with the years now, but anyway, he, he was a guy who'd done like five or six deals in beauty that I really looked up to. And I thought, if he's done those deals, then he could definitely do ours. Yeah. And then when we actually took it seriously, I, went, I reached out to like a lot of the big corporate houses, like EKPMGs and all the big ones, and spoke to loads of different corporate finance advisors, got all the prices, assessed it, and I decided to go with, uh, ultimate my gut with the guy that I actually met first. And I trusted him to help us find a good deal. Um, so then their plan is, then you then you create a process. So make sure the information is packed together. So you've got all your finance information. You've got everything that they're going to want to see, like the investors. Mm. Then you go to market. So they'll start to speak to various different buyers, and you go through a full process of speaking to how many do we? Oh God, can't imagine. Eight so, or nine. So are they going out proactively trying to yeah. then find buyers? Yeah. And, and this process was initiated just by inbound people that were interested in buying it so he probably had like four or five inbounds at this point yeah. and it was like a case of they were like in the bucket like potentials mm. but then what I realised about the corporate finance world is, is it's very small so like the news of Hairburst going to market to sell is not like a hard message because it's almost like I mean how many corporate finance advisors are there in beauty in the UK don't know mm. if there's a specialist I'd probably guess you're going to kill me because it might be completely wrong. But I'm going to guess say ten. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Like proper specialists at like a high level doing beauty. Let's say there's ten, and then they all know all the buyers. So like once one knows, the next one knows. Before you know it, like all the potential acquirers probably know it's for sale. So it's not like they're like hammering the phone trying to find buyers. It's like yeah, there's a certain amount of buyers, there's a certain amount of corporate finance advisors, and there's only so many brands. So they're all like that's how these big corporates grow. They buy. So they're always looking. So when something's coming, they'll they find out about it quite quickly. And then, 
like obviously it's a fucking long process but like in layman's terms are they literally just are they dishing out like an initial potential number and then going into due diligence yeah or? so it's like a parade so you go you get all the interested people there's a lot of like chit chat all this kind of stuff um get a feel for why they want to buy the business and if they're interested enough it's like okay we'll go and present so we'd go and present went all over europe by all these different buyers mm. we go meet them do like a full management presentation explain like how the business works what we do all the information about it then we get like some kind of indicative offer so they'd say the business is worth this we think we'd love to progress and get more information on the business blah 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 and at this point that offer means absolutely fuck all because yeah. <laughs> after it is when they tear it down so they what often happen is your buyer goes, oh, we think it's worth this much. And we all go, holy shit, that's a big number. Okay, yeah, we're going to tell you more. Like, we'll do due diligence. Like, here's all the finance information. Here's how we run it. Call after call after call after call. And then it's like, right, what's the actual price after that? Mm. So in, I'm sure a lot of business owners out there have had indicative offers. Like, and rightfully so, like, the guys who have put the indicative offer in have probably only seen a management presentation. Like, how can you value your business without getting into the information? So, yeah. that first one means nothing. So, they're going to tear it down? I mean, it depends Typically. who you're dealing with. So, it depends on what reason. So, then let's just say you had a potential 20 buyers. Mm. You whittle that down to like four or five, and then you let them in the data room. So, that's all the information about the business into one file, like all the legal information, all the yeah. trademarks, the finance information. Um, everything's in this one pack. So everyone rummages around there for like three or four weeks. And then it's like, the buyers are thinking, okay, what's our actual offer gonna be now? Like how many people are gonna be interested? They'll probably be speaking around, speaking to different buyers. Like we're thinking about putting this in, we're thinking about putting that in, like how much is the business worth? And then it's like, that's where the big posturing happens. So some buyers might go, oh, it's actually 30% less for this reason. And the reason actually doesn't even matter because at this point it's like, you've got a rough indication of what the business is worth. The reasons that they provide may or may not be legitimate. And then it's a case of like, then we have to choose like the buyer at that point. Whose court is the ball in at this stage of the process, do you think? Depends how many, good question. So it depends, it's like anything, right? So it depends on how many options you've got really. Mm. So if you've only got one option, I won't even go to market. And at this point, did you did you care emotionally if it, if a deal was going to happen or not? Or oh, yeah. have you been tempted? Yeah, no, I was down the carrots in front of you. It was brutal. Like, so what we did was when we when I said it wasn't the plan to sell, like my approach to selling was this is the business. I'm fine because I've got all this money saved that I spoke about before. Mm. So we'll sell it, but only on our terms. That was like the approach. Yeah. But obviously, it's a really successful brand, and people wanted to buy it. So. It attracted a lot of interest. Um, and I think that was the best position to be in because I was quite clear that like, this is this is what I'll accept. This is like what I want to do. If you're in a situation where you're desperate to sell it, then you, you, you're, the business is probably not, there's a reason why that is. The buyers yeah. are going to see the information anyway. So you, I think a lot of people like try and sell, like and I've had it now, I'm a buyer of brands. I've seen it like, mm. oh, this, I don't know, like econ brand has done like this for the last three years then it's done this and now they want to sell it it's like well I can see what's going on here <laughs> you know yeah. but we had like a really strong brand that was continuing to grow and got loads of prospects in the future so who balls the court in so for us it was actually 
ours at the start of the process, but we had an 18 month process. So we did the first round and we turned down every single offer and went to market again, 12 months later. Um, and we got to a place where we thought we'd accept. Um, and there was three different parties that were involved um, at that point. So I had, I had a good choice of what I wanted to do. And did you ever think, oh, we could push this a bit harder for two more years and I don't know, you know double the money, whatever? Because obviously, like, yeah. sound, you know, you read about it, like, broadly speaking, timing is obviously important. You want to sell when it's on the up. Yeah. So like, it, did you ever think about that? 100%. 100%. And that's why we turned down the first, when we did the first round, like 12 months ago, we turned it all down because we were like, and it goes back, this is like more of a, a broader thing, but like when you actually consider what money is, like, so for me, it's it's access to freedom. So when you go, I was never caught, too caught up in the numbers, but mm. it's like inevitable, right? Because you set up a business up for money, like everyone wants to make good money. That's like an obvious thing. But it was like, when you get a certain amount of money, like 10, 20, 50 million, whatever it is, like what are you actually going to do with that? And how's that going to increase your happiness or life? Mm. Like realistically, it's probably not going to change that much. Well, I was going to ask you these philosophical questions. Afterwards. Is it afterwards, right? Okay. But well, no, it's a good point. No, but I mean, yeah. Yeah, I want, I want to come on to that after. Sure, let's carry on. Let's carry on. Right, in my head, that's the logical next step. Right, okay, so let's carry on. So so you get the few offers that you're happy with? A few offers have come in. There's three. I'm happy with the valuation. Now, there was, the well, two were the same. One was different and JD was a different one. Yeah. Um, so JD came around through a different advisor, which gets really complicated. Yeah, really. So... We had the, the common like beauty buyers. Mm. And then this guy is a really cool guy from Manchester called Paul, who runs a firm called Sedulo. Um And he was like, me and him, I actually hadn't, we hadn't, I just met him once before and I thought he was pretty cool. And he was in Dubai when I was in Dubai. So I was like, do you wanna go for a beer? He was like, yeah. Um, and I was getting quite frustrated with the process because we've been, this is like an 18 month thing, right? So we I went to go meet him as like a second opinion. We got a chat and I was like, we're like we've got some really good offers I'm trying to figure out what to do like I was like using my network to try and get different opinions and he was like well why don't you would you consider doing a deal with someone like JD so yeah we went to go for that meeting but we had that one and then yeah two others that were P-backed uh, beauty conglomerates almost um, so it was three at the very end which was hard for and me. And you're going through due diligence with all three? All three. So to the bare bones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was brutal. Like, it was so, like I'm rubbish in the morning. Like I, My brain kicks in at like, I'm glad this podcast is now because if it was at 9am, I'd be useless. But I don't, yeah, we don't do morning podcasts like that, the midnight pod. But I'm on calls at like seven in the morning to like one buyer. Then I'm doing another one at nine and then I'm doing another one. I'm just like bored out my brain. So it's like, that was brutal. So has this become a full-time process for you at this point? 100%, in terms of yeah. not working on the business anymore? And this is a common thing, like businesses start to really suffer during these processes because you can't, I mean, there's a few things. So first of all, you're obsessed with like your monthly numbers, which is a bad thing. Like if you're obsessed with your monthly numbers, you're in a bad spot because- Well, because you want it to be growing. When, because it, because every, every business performs better if you have a long-term vision. Mm. But when you're like, you've got corporate finance people like crawling all over your business, like watching you month by month. Because these processes from start to finish are like a four month thing. Yeah. So you go to sell a business, you do the beauty parade, everyone's looking at your business, they want to buy it. 
and then your sales drop in that month yeah. like everyone knows about it so it's like you've got a you're in that set of like you're sinking short term you're monitoring the numbers but at the same time you're doing the chatting to all the buyers and that's a full that is like a full-time thing because you have to prep for each call each buyer might be looking for the business for a different reason so you want to show that part of the business off like what JD liked about Hairburst was we had a platform for beauty brands. So if we can, I mean, we've got tens of thousands of influencers that we've used over the years and we have all their details. We understand their performance metrics. We know which ones are good and which ones are bad. So if we can plug other beauty brands into that, which we'll get onto later, is a real asset. Now, other brands liked us because we could launch brands quite quickly through social media. So we'd explain that to like another buyer. So you're having to prep for all these calls and do them and run a business. Yeah. So it's a nightmare. For me, it was like a full-time thing towards the end. Yeah. So then accepting, like you go through due diligence, is it literally a case of yes or no to the three at this point? It go. It went right to the wire for, with two, JD being one and another one. Yeah. Um, and that was like, that was like a tough few weeks. Um, I actually accepted less money on the deal that I did because I didn't like the way that Hairburst would have gone with the other party, even though I'd have probably got, well, I would have got more money. Um, and I didn't really want to be in that private equity world with the Hairburst brand. Now, mm. private equity is good for some things. Like I'm working with some private equity firms now on looking at different brands and like co-investing and all that kind of stuff. But for a buyer for Hairburst and the way that the business is run, it didn't feel like the right fit. So yeah. I kind of went with my gut on that um, when I chose the buyer, but it was more about what it was going to be. And I believed in Hairburst being a platform for other brands and I'm in control of that. So that was like quite a good new thing for me to do. Mm. Whereas the other one would have been, we'd have plugged into a bigger group of other brands and we'd have been helping like other brands, but we might not have been passionate about those brands. So I didn't like the idea of that. And then from accepting, because again, in like layman's terms, is fucking no, no one watching will have done this. Um, from accepting that deal, like to like effectively money in the bank, like how, how long is that? Because we kind of spoke about this in episode 15, actually, which is like a private equity episode. But so it's more interesting because you actually did it yourself. So signed, so the last like few days is like hell. Because you're like, mm. <laughs> you're like, so what I, what I, how I dealt with the pressure of the deal was I just pretended it wasn't happening, even though I was on all these calls. Yeah. Because I always knew like from our previous experience 12 months ago that like everyone's just playing a game and anything can drop at any moment. So until the money's in your bank, it's not finished. So even until like, the last few days, I'm like, yeah, it might not be finished. Like this might happen, this whatever. Um, so I was kind of just like pretending it's not definitely going to happen because you didn't know what's going to go wrong. So, but then towards like, when I'm in like day two towards end, I'm like, you can't ignore it. It's like, I'm literally signing all these paperwork for like the legals. I'm signing paper for this. I'm signing paper for this, whatever. Um, finished. You get a call from a lawyer that said, uh, so I actually finished on a Friday at like 7 PM. And I was like, is it done? But no one said, but I was like, I've signed everything I've been asked to sign. We've agreed a price. I know what's happening. So what happens is the, so the seller, there's two law, law firms involved that are external. So mm -hmm. we use the firm JD 
did some in-house, but also use a firm. So they send the money to the, the law firm of the, so who's like, so what would usually happen is they would send the money to the law firm and they hold the money. Now, because we finished, it's like seven on Friday. I'm like, like, like in escrow effectively. Yeah. I'm like, has it gone there? Mm. But no one will tell me because it's like late on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. So I'm like, if it's gone there, I was like, it's done in my head. But I didn't know if it had gone. So I'm like waiting for confirmations. So I had to wait all weekend that weekend, like not knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like pestering the lawyers all weekend trying to get a thing. It's like, oh, I think it's been sent, but oh no, this is, this is, uh, I had a call on that Friday and the, the, the lawyer said to me, right, so we've completed. Um, they can send the money into the lawyer's account, but because it's Friday at 7 p.m., it's not the it's not going to be processed until Monday morning. If they send it now, there's a chance it might get lost. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I was like, what sort of question is that? So he's like, your choice is we can send it and accept it. But he's like, and I'm like, what? Like you send it from a bank to a bank, it can get lost, not crypto. It's like, this is like real money with like real yeah. banks. And he's like, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a tiny percent risk. And I'm like, oh God, right, fine. Wait till Monday and just send it then. Yeah, like, fuck that. Jesus Christ. So, and then obviously got through that weekend. Um, Monday, they've got it. And then they've rang, like all the lawyers have rang, like their side and our side have rang to say, Oh, we've completed like congratulations I'm like hey when we get my money and then they sent it on like that day and I received it the next day so it was like we completed it's almost like a five day thing so yeah. on a Tuesday yeah was that a good Tuesday <laughs> um, so I my business partner got I'm like messaging him it probably received I think we got like 3pm when I'm like waiting all day for it to be sent I'm like messaging him like, have you sent it yeah have you sent it they're like yeah it's coming so it's all right, okay and I was just driving to the gym in Leeds, actually, David Lloyd. Mm. And uh, I've parked up my car and I've looked at my WhatsApp and they're like, oh, I've just received my money. So I was like, okay. So I've gone on my phone and got on my internet banking and it's like there. So like, right, it's done. And yeah. then just went into the gym and had a workout. <laughs> um, yeah. Was that like a good feeling or was it anticlimax? Because... We always talk about this shit. Like, I can't fucking wait till that day. Get a big fat exit. Probably be a bit down to climax for you. I think it's like, don't get me wrong, it's a good day, right? Um, but you're kind of on like, I didn't, oh shit, I didn't know how I would respond. So I'm kind of a bit on edge because I'm mm. like, this money's coming in. It's what I've been working on for the last nine years. Like, it's not the end to hair burst because the brand's going to continue. I'm still involved and all that kind of stuff, but it's a big deal, right? But um, I was pretty pumped that day. Pretty happy it was done, but I didn't expect it to be. It's not like I went from like zero to like whatever because I had the money saved. And I kind of, my approach to money was evolved over the years. And like I said, when at the very start, like I was so reserved my money and I wanted to save, 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 save. Got myself into a good plot spot. Um, And it was just more of that. And I kind of, learned how to it kind of happened slowly it wasn't like like you see some businesses like you know when ebay sold um was it ebay that sold no uh sorry a german version of the guys who made rocket internet made like a ebay version in germany mm. sold it to actual ebay for like 40 million it took like 40 days to like from founding to sale what the fuck? so they went like bang yeah it's like god knows what that was like right but for me it was like nine years of like yeah. work so it didn't wasn't like I got 
rich or, or one spot. Like it's more exciting the start what I was talking about where like mm. I can see it coming. So it was I mean it was more it felt more like a relief to, for that process to be over, which took eighteen months. Yeah. Than like sparkles going off and we're going nuts. So I was pretty chilled. Did you do anything to celebrate? Um so initially no. Or buy anything by Cullinan. in. Honestly, things I bought for myself since the deal. I reckon I bought an Apple Watch strap for seven quid that didn't even fit my Apple my wrist, so I didn't even use it. And that's it. I'm being deadly serious. And I bought a single thing. But what I did do was, um, like I've said to myself, like, oh, I'd like to get like a new watch to like. So I can look at that watch and go, this is like my deal watch. Mm. Can't be asked to go buy one. So I've just not bought one. Can't be asked to go, I hate shopping. So I've not done that. Um, I did a, I took my mates on holiday to celebrate. So that was good. That was the best thing we did. Oh yeah. Because that was like a proper celebration for the deal. But that was like, yeah. that was fairly recently. So it was like three months after the deal we did that. Uh, that was really cool. Um do you think it actually, I mean, you obviously read about this shit, like money changes you, it brings out the real person, blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, obviously, yeah, you said it's kind of different in a way because you said you already have money and shit. But like, do you think after the, does your worldview change at all for you? Since the deal. Like, Well, I suppose, yeah, it's, maybe you're a bit, I, I don't know if you're a unique case or not because you already had made like stacks of, cash and shit and invested it but yes I guess since the deal because that's like the big, the big one does it change how you view I don't know I'm not trying to ask does it fucking change anything really um, or is it just more access so like for example like a lot of people want to meet me since I've done that deal well including me but I already followed you so yeah I just wanted to get on the pod so that's a uh, that's quite cool because you mm. mean cool people like I like meeting new people so that's cool um, like a lot of people are aware of it I don't think would be aware of it yeah like a lot of people know about that deal but it was in like the Times newspaper and like loads of like old fashioned sort of like deal places so I've got like yeah. loads of messages from like a lot of cool people that I'm happy to go for coffee with and like explore ideas and stuff so I quite enjoyed that side of it um, I'd say like zero to like three mil is like loads more exciting and you start to have those sort of considerations I think after that it's just like it's nothing changes uh, at any level huh? I think like even if you made a billion quid I don't know if you did but I don't think you did um, <laughs> can't comment uh, not that much um, if you had a billion quid uh, there's a lot of unhappy rich people I'll say that much. And that's mm. like a common thing. There's a lot of unhappy rich people. And I think to get to that level, like when I spoke earlier about you drive to learn, like some people are just driven. Like there's billionaires who wanting to buy the brand. So I've met billionaires in this process. Weird. Like, there's like something, like a lot of them, like one particular person was, must have been, um, he was like an absolute 
animal. Like he was still going like full speed, like well into his like seventies. And like, fucking hell. Like I admired it from one standpoint because I'm like, the work ethic's unbelievable. But I'm like, where does it actually come from? Because it has to come from somewhere. So I don't know if he's trying to. What is cool if someone's like trying to prove something to self. So like, if you have that motivation, trying to prove something to yourself, that's a massive um, asset because you're yourself developing like same way as like if you go if you get into running like you want to beat your own time because you're, you're trying to like compete against yourself and you develop yourself in that way i think if you're driven by something that's external it's probably going to be bad like you're trying to like sell more than a competitor or you're trying to like that's all just like superficial bullshit and you look back and think that was a complete waste of my energy and time but like i never have a, i never had like a fixed figure or anything like that um so did anything change from that no did making like previously like making like like three million quid plus or anything like that change anything I think it probably I think I got confidence from it I think as a person I grew in confidence because I was like I thought I was good at this I've done it and it's working so mm. what else can I do you know like if I can do this with this brand like what else can I do so like I felt like now I feel like I've been like successful, I've exceeded what my initial plans were. So I gained confidence from it. Um, I'm trying to think on the spot. No, I think it's a good answer. Do you think? Do you think you've realised what actually makes you happy more since getting, oh, uh, getting a lot of money? Because obviously, like I mean, myself included. Yeah. Probably particularly when I was younger, but even now, I'm like self-aware of it, but I'm still fucking doing it. It's like. Yeah, I want to make a load of money. But then I asked this hypothetical question to myself and other people, like, you know, if I got given a billion quid today, what would I do? Mm. And then I should probably do something along the lines of what I'd do now to actually make potentially mm. a billion quid, which is kind of what I'm doing now anyway. I probably still have a podcast and shit. I might just have a Cullinan downstairs. But <laughs> yeah, have you realised what makes you happy? And has that changed over time when like the desire for money Disappears. has been yeah, removed? Yeah, I'd say you learn a lot about yourself. That's a good point. You do learn a lot about yourself because you, you face, you put yourself in a different situation, and it might be might have been the core driver for like ten years of your life, mm. right? And then you actually achieve it, and then you go, well, "What? What the hell's next?" And like everyone talks about the gold medal uh, thing, where like people who another stupid stat that I'm going to come, come out with that's probably not true, but X percent of people who win a gold medal get a bit depressed because they've yeah. they've aimed for especially like athletics, right? A lot of I don't know. Let's just say, let's just pick like rowing or, because you used to be a rower, didn't you? Mm. Like a lot of people who are yeah. going to be a gold medal, they probably started when they were like three or four or six. Yeah. Is that is that right? We're a bit older for rowing, but yeah, it's the same, so you, same principle. So you're so young and you yeah. go for that thing, you know? Mm. So, I mean, for me, it was, I'm spending more and more time now because I'm not so focused on making money. I'd like really trying to understand and answer that question. So like, what do I enjoy? I like seeing like, I like engaging conversations with like so. interesting people. I like seeing people around me happy. I don't like to be surrounded by people who are, not, who are like not happy. I like to help people. I like to see other people succeed. So like, that's where like angel investing is like exciting to me because I get to hopefully see like be involved in like people being successful and being around that sort of stuff. Mm. I like to learn new stuff, and like none of that involves making money really. Like angel investing, you might make a bit of money but it's not going to be I don't do angel investments for making money I do it to be involved with 
cool shit. So like, my drive has probably changed a little bit since the deal maybe, but um, I like, this is like something I used to do. So I used to play, uh, what I've tried to think about and the way I process it is what is, when you're a kid, all you do is have fun. Like your decision-making process as a six-year-old is, mm. when, you was, when I was six, it was like, I want to go play football. I want to play video games because that's what I find fun. Yeah. So as you go into your adult life, like, do you re- does anyone actually really think that way? Because I didn't. Because my thing was like, learn, learn, learn. Like if I'm at the gym, I'm listening to a podcast about business. If I'm at home, I'm reading a book about business if, and I'm doing business. So now I'm like trying to play more sport and do stuff that I do purely for fun. And that's made me quite happy. So yeah. yeah. Golf at the moment. <laughs> it's like sucking me in. So what's the plan for you? Oh, no, obviously you're still involved in Hairburst. Yeah. So, but like, what's your plan, I guess, kind of immediately like this the next year or so but then also going forward like is there any concrete plans that you want to start a new fucking startup or change the world in some way still figuring it out I think it's obviously still young yeah so long story short for the next year so I'm we're now I'm now acquiring brands in the beauty and wellness space within the Hairburst group and with JD so if we find like cool brands that we think we can help We'll buy like a minority or majority stake in that. Leverage all the stores that Hairburst has got, plus all the influencer contacts and everything else. Um, so I've been doing that for the last three or four months. That's quite uh, interesting, meeting loads of cool people doing that. Um, chatting about angel investments and doing a bit of that as well. Um, no concrete plans to start a new brand anytime soon, but the startup phase is the most fun. So who knows one day. I've got an interesting question. If you, hypothetically, with the knowledge you have now, lost every penny, no investments, anything, yeah. what would you, I guess kind of two parts. Firstly, what would you do? Well, what, how, how would you get started again? Because, um, you know, a lot of people watching probably say, I've got fucking 500 quid. Obviously you've got experience. And what brand would you start? like broadly speaking just on off the top of your head yeah like what would you focus on so the first so I guess like what would you work on and how would you get the bits together to make it happen if you had no money yeah but the experience you've got so we haven't spoken about this yet but first things first is I'd assess myself so like people might call it mindset or whatever but trying to go a bit deeper than that is and go back to my diary and like my analytical mindset that I've think I've probably maybe I've been born with it or maybe I acquired it from mm. finding interesting things but where's your time so like again it's like capital resources and time so it's like right where's my time so if I'm now 20 again and I'm thinking about doing a business I spend probably how many hours do I spend playing FIFA and COD right let's have a look at that how many yeah. times do I spend watching fucking shit on TV I actually never really watched that much TV. I didn't really find it interesting, but I did play FIFA and stuff. So it was like, right, look at things like that first. Like break yourself down. Like, what do you know? Okay, you probably know nothing because you're young. So start to invest time in learning, but you have to free up that time. A lot of people say they haven't got time. Well, you have. You might not spend, I don't know. I've got a mate who sleeps like four hours a night and he's like a live wire. Like for me, I have like a good eight hours. So I've got like 16 hours a day, right? So it's like, where is that time going? Um, and I'd invest that time into learning and understanding things. 
um, first and assessing my expenditure. So I'd probably try and find a way to make a bit of extra money. If you've got a full-time job, like, okay, just simple maths, like do like a P&L on yourself. Like, okay, my rent's 400 quid a month in Scunny, probably a lot more down here. Yeah, <laughs> a lot more. My rent's like 400 quid a month. I bring in 30K or 20K a year and start to like save and just have that mindset of, because if the first thing you're going to do is if you make any money in your business and you're going to spend it, like that's fine if the business is going to continue to grow, but I'd have that. Like when I was doing the phones for you job, I was went back home, I was living at home. I was paying like minimal rent to my parents. And I just like stomached it. I think you have to go through that to like, and I, again, like this is another story. Like when I went traveling when I was younger with my friends after, I've been between poker and like phones for you. I was, we spent, like tenner a day probably was the budget. We lived in a tent together in Australia. Yeah. And I was happy as I've ever been, mm. you know? So I learned how to live skin, basically. I think mm. that's a good asset. Because if you can live at a really low level, yeah, then when you do build a business, you'll run it in the same way, you know? Like if you spend, if you have like a really good job somewhere and you spend all your money on like going out and stuff, then you're going to find it difficult when you build a business and start to make money to invest it in the right places. You just like... So I think that's a mindset thing. It's the first thing I would do. Mm. Then I'd invest my time into learning. And to answer your question about what brand would I start, I mean... Like right now, where do you think is the best opportunity from an e-com perspective is what I'm saying? Yeah, And I want you to say what I'm working on, but maybe not. Um, I mean, there's obviously more than one, but just your opinion. So what I've... There's so much information out there now in terms of like not only like learning from YouTube videos and books and stuff, but like I can, which you didn't used to be able to do when I started, I can go on Amazon now and I can find out what revenue like any product's doing. So I can go on, like, I can't remember what it's called now. You might know because you're an e-com head, but there's like apps you can get. That like e-com hunters. Yeah, some, I don't know. Is it Jungle Scout or something there's, like that? There's a lot of them. Yeah, Amazon, AMZ. Z so I, I can now go on and find out, let's just pick a category, okay? Detergent, I said that up earlier, I don't know why I'm on detergent at the moment. But I could find out like how much revenue the biggest brand in the world will do on Amazon. I can figure out how much traffic that site's gonna get through Google Trends. I can figure out all this kind of stuff. So I'd probably pick a book like Category Killers. That's the worst endorsement ever because I've not actually read it, but it sounds about right where you're identifying a different category. I'd go deep into that category. So like brands like, that big conglomerates own are like a faceless brand that's ready for disruption. So I would find something like that to go after. So like, um, like with, for example, with, with our category, it was a similar thing where there's lots of faceless brands. There wasn't any social media brands. There was no one doing that through e-com. There's so many things that are still, there might be in retail stores. They haven't been like digitalized or brought through e-commerce yet. Mm. And even then, like you don't necessarily need, like if your goal is what my goal is, which is to like have your own econ thing and like live off that. You don't need to really create anything unique. It's all going to come down to execution. Yeah. Like there's many people who could go and like start a clothing brand. Like all you have to do is find the manufacturer. So all the skill and all the the wealth is generated through the execution of said project, which is a skill. So you can acquire that. Um. So I'd, I'd identify different categories. I'd get the information through like Amazon and 
Google on different traffic, sales and all that kind of stuff first. And then think, okay, could we do something a bit different in that category and then go from there? Yeah. Good shit, good shit. Fuck. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I feel like we could go down so many different things. But it's been like over two hours. <laughs> this is the long one. Um, I feel like, I mean, there's a few different last questions I want to ask. But one question is, what's been the hardest thing, just from a personal level, going from fucking phone shop worker to fucking exiting a big business and making a lot of money and, and doing what a lot of people want to do what's the hardest thing personally yeah the single hardest thing across everything the whole journey if you had to pick one um, this is probably not very useful because it's quite a unique situation. Um, but one of our co-founders got really ill in like the early stages of the brand. So he developed, um, I don't know if think you'll mind me. I've spoke about it to a few people. I don't think you'll mind me talking about it. But he developed Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer and we lived together. Mm. He was a co-founder of the brand. And uh, he went through like, I think it was three, maybe more years of like treatment and stuff. And he wasn't, he wanted to work on the business, but he was unable to. Um, and it all worked out fine. Like we managed to agree a deal um, where we bought his shares out and stuff like that. So it all worked out fine and he got looked after and he's, he's made great money from the business and stuff. But that was like a really tough time because I had to figure out that, which is not easy because it's, you know, that was like quite a difficult situation. I'm watching that happen and observing that. Um, that was like quite a tricky time. Uh, figuring out what the right thing was to do. Um, trying to think of something more useful that might be more applicable to other founders, maybe. Um, mm. My lowest point was in the middle. So I wonder if... I think having an end goal is quite good because I... The, the, the first bit where I'm making my money for the first time was like amazing. Like the best time of my life apart from my trip to Thailand when I was like 20. Um, and then I remember just like not really knowing and feeling a bit lost like when I was like 26, 27. And I think it was like, we'd done the brand, we'd made good money, but like now what? And I kind of felt a bit lost at that point in time. I remember feeling like particularly not great during that period. Yeah. Um, but then realigning myself and going, right, okay, we're actually going to go for an exit now. So I think I almost needed that end goal. I'm, this is, I'm just thinking this off the top of my head. Yeah, no. I've not actually said, I don't think I've said that before. Because um, we, even, we never, we was, the goals are always quite loose, but I think having a, a target to go for is quite good, which might be as silly as like a revenue target for a year or whatever, but I definitely got myself into like a loss period in the middle where I'm like, I've achieved my life goal now, what do I do? Which I think is what people allude to when they sell, but because yeah. that wasn't actually ever my goal, I didn't really have that. I had it in the middle where, I can travel. I've got money. Yeah. Now what the hell do I do? And then figuring that out was like quite tricky. Yeah, interesting. On the flip side, what was what was the most fulfilling part of the process? Which makes an interesting question because I think a lot of people are searching for that and maybe never find it. Um So the happiest time was the start. 
because we were doing what I wanted to do, which is travel. But what was the most fulfilling? It's a much deeper question. Got to go deep. It wasn't when we sold. If that's what people think I'm going to say, it's not that. Because I didn't, it was like, a, that, was, that wasn't like a, I didn't get like a euphoric feeling of like fulfillment from that. Mm. And even like, when we, when I, people go, well, when I saw my products in the store for the first time, I honestly didn't care. Like it wasn't even a thing. Yeah. Like I remember we've got, like people were saying like, you've got to be excited, like your brand's in Holden Barrett, it's sat there on the shelf. I was like, I think I had a particularly bad day that day. Like something happened in the business that like got my mood down. So I've got into Holden Barrett store. I'm like, great. Yeah, it's there. I knew it was going to be there. Take a picture. Right. Okay. <laughs> I was like literally it. Like I wasn't bothered. Um, Look, like, okay, it's not the exit. I mean, it's definitely not the exit day. Yeah. But I think knowing that, like looking back at all the fun times I had with my mates during that period of time is like, as the years go on, it's probably going to, it's being more and more fulfilling, even though it's that, that bit's finished. Mm. I like, just thinking about it, looking back at it, I could, even just thinking about it and talking about it now, I'm actually feeling like pretty good. So that's like, it's nice to know that's going to continue. because so you can look back and go, yeah, we did really well. Um, and I had a great time building that business as well. Like at e-com, like especially e-com, like you can get wrapped up in it. It can be super stressful, but like what a privilege this life is to be able to build a business from your flat and have the potential to get to an amazing size when our grandparents were going to war and all this kind of stuff. You yeah, know? yeah. Like what a privilege. And I think, but that's great. That comes from gratitude. It's not, I guess it's fulfillment, but it's gratitude and that, but you have to develop that skill. And that's, again, since the exit, it's like looking back, really appreciating what you've gone through is something I'm trying to work on and developing myself. But I think that's like becoming quite fulfilling. Yeah. Nice, nice. Um, I'll wrap it up with one last question because I feel like I could go down a million rabbit holes and make a five-hour podcast, but everyone would fucking stop watching. I've asked this to everyone now. So do you give three bits of practical advice to yourself when you were, I don't know, when you fucking started, 20 years old, knowing what you know now, what would they be in, in life and business? In summary. Um, That's got to be w- worth its weight in gold for a lot of people. I'm trying to think of something no that's pressure. not like dead generic. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's a generic question, but it can be a good answer. God, I should have prepared for this three practical things of advice um what's gonna happen is i'm gonna go home in a minute and think i should have said that so much better than what i did say um let's go with your gut it's gonna be three hour podcast before i get this out um (laughs) three practical things of advice i'm trying to think what i tell people when i speak to them about building a business um I would say like, right, okay. So think about, look after yourself, like number one, meaning like when you build a business, especially today, like there is a lot of investors out there, like spend time finding the right investors, looking at like term sheets, like proper term sheets, like don't, like just, yeah, look after yourself because you're going to, come across a lot of people when something goes good and you just don't want to wrap yourself like the amount of founders that I meet who have got like 10% of their own business 
and they've raised five, 10 million quid over the course of like four or five years. And I'm like, what have you actually taken out of this business? And they're like, a salary. And I'm like, what's your salary? And they're like, it might be a good salary by this point, but yeah. I'm thinking this is what you could have had. Like, yes, your investors want you to grow at like 100% a year, but if you grow at 50% a year, how much could you have taken out? And like, just, just remember like how lucky you are to be in a position to grow a business like this. Put yourself first. Um, in terms of like the money that you can take out of the business. Um, yeah. Is that enough anymore? I'm trying to think of another topic. Um, that's a good one. I'll put you so on the spot here. Fucking hell. I see so many though. It's like, because it is easy to get caught up in the numbers and like, especially when you see like on TechCrunch and all these other places, like so-and-so is valued at this and valued at that. Okay, that's another one. Don't focus on headline numbers. That's mm. a big one. So I've finally got to number two. Don't focus on headline numbers because like it's the press, right? Like they want to get a story to shout about. Like you'll see if a business is worth like 200 million, that doesn't mean that person has got 200 million. Like it's easy to look at a brand and think it's like super successful, but it might've yeah. just gone through seven different funding rounds and the P fund that's put money into it want to raise its profile. So they've got the paid press and more people looking at the business because they've heard the story and, but what's happening to the founder is my point. Like, what is that yeah. founder getting out of this? Because they're the one who like built it. They're the one who like brought it to the world and they should be looked after. But you have to look after yourself in this world because people will, yeah, that's a negative thing to end on, but yeah, look after yourself. That's two points, that's why. <laughs> Final one. Um. Anything, personal, business, philosophy. I think we've talked, covered this a lot already, but like, just, just like, so if I died tomorrow, I honestly reckon I could look back and think if I had like the split 10 seconds before yeah. I died, mm. which might happen, <laughs> I honestly think like I'd think yeah you've given it a good go and like I think about this a lot because since my friend got like really ill like he's fine now he's never looked better actually he's like do you know what I mean he's like he recovered like four years ago and now he's now he's on top form mm. but like seeing that and getting close to that like you soon realise like you've only got 80 years or whatever is the average age in the UK that people yeah. last like just do be careful with yourself like strive to be happy and um, just try and take each step of your journey on building a business with, with gratitude and be grateful that you've got the chance to, to build it rather than yeah like just think about what a great position we are in in 2022 where you can build these businesses and just and just focus on that when you have a bad day because they're going to come wise words wise words <laughs> um, yeah fuck that was an interesting one I think yeah this has definitely been the most like full e-com story pod I've done. Okay. Fundamentally an e-commerce podcast because yeah, I mean, start, middle, end really in my mind and going forward. So yes, super fucking interesting story. Um, there's probably loads of things that didn't even cover, but we've done like two and a half hours so I'm going to try and wrap it up. Um, yeah, fuck, hope you enjoyed the pod. Um, if you're enjoying 
I think it's like 99% male, so I always say, fellas, <laughs> subscribe to the pod. Um, yeah, we've got loads more lined up. Go fucking stalk Jimmy on Instagram or some shit. I'll have to turn his DMs off. And yeah, cheers for watching the episode. I hope you learned a lot. I certainly did. And we'll see you in the next one. Peace. Peace.